Welcome to Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. Join me, your host, Sam Wiles, as we discover the history, the music, and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Hello, 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 and welcome to the episode of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. And remember, this is wide screen podcasting. This is wide screen podcasting. I am, of course, your host, Sam Wiles. Thank you all for tuning in. I hope you're all well, safe and sound. Today, folks, is an episode that we've been making for quite some time now. And no, I don't mean the off the ground episode. And with the release of a certain music video that we're going to be talking about later, it is now time, finally, to conclude a series of episodes that we did on the show here where we covered everything surrounding McCartney 3 up until its release. Go and check those out if you haven't already. But if you don't know the format, basically we've just been sifting through every piece of ancillary media that was created around and for and by McCartney 3 and 3 Imagined. Now... If that sounds too much like bureaucratic homework, then let me just run the topics past you first. Maybe I can hook you in. Today we're going to be covering all four, possibly five, of the McCartney 3 bonus tracks. We're going to look at all of the music videos, including Find My Way, the Jeff Dunbar animated When Winter Comes slide in, the lyrics videos. We're going to discuss Dominic Fike's Kiss Venus, Beck's Find My Way. We're going to conclude The 12 Days of Paul. We're going to talk about Paul McCartney's Reddit Ask Me Anything. And then we're going to look at all of the video interviews, including Zane Lowe, Idris Elba, Howard Stern, Chris Rock, Jimmy Fallon, and the Adam Buxton podcast. And finally, we're going to round it all out with the last of the major published reviews in print media that we had for McCartney 3. As usual, nothing too complicated here. This episode is mainly just for me, but I know we're going to have some fun. Also, as a little aside, I did record this in sections, and so the audio quality may vary from chat to chat, but I also know that I recorded at least half of the solo segment on my Mac's own microphone rather than this nice one my lovely Patreon patrons bought for me, so apologies where necessary. Anyway, before we get into any of that, we must first do the business of the... Housekeeping! So, what do we have in terms of news for today? Well, first of all, Paul himself was spotted back in his hometown of Liverpool with his daughters Stella and Mary to pay tribute and pay their respects on what would have been Linda McCartney's 80th birthday. Paul was snapped in Liverpool Lime Street Station, as well as standing in a bus stop, which was all over the internet for some reason. Also, whilst he was in the area, Paul took out an advertisement in the classified pages of the Liverpool Echo, aka the main newspaper in Liverpool, and according to... The media, it was meant to be this cryptic, mysterious post that had everyone confused, but to anyone in the know, it was very clearly an advertisement for Grand Dude's Green Submarine, aka Hey Grand Dude 2, the plot of which will be the search for Nandude. The classified advertisement reads as thus. Grand Dude and his four chillers are looking for their adventure-loving Nandude. Nandude has traversed the thickest jungles and sailed the deepest oceans, always to return with stories to tell. But she's been gone for far longer than we expected. Grandude needs your help. Nandude loves playing the accordion. If you listen out, you might just hear her before you see her. Have you seen Nandude? 
and then there was little like hashtags like I've seen Nandude and where is Nandude which I'm yet to exploit on the Twitter I probably should maybe someone from MPL will get in contact with you who knows also speaking of Nandude the latest Q&A segment on McCartney's own website aka you gave me the answer specifically deals with the topic of Grand Dude's Green Submarine, the inspirations for it, and a few little details that, if you are interested, I definitely recommend you go check out. But yeah, it's not been too long since I recorded the last episode, so it's going to be quite a short news segment, as to be expected, so we'll crack on with the plugs. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. For more day-to-day updates, follow us on our Twitter page, which is at McCartneyPod. You can also follow us on other socials, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram by typing in Paul or Nothing or Paul McCartney Podcast. For bonus Paul or Nothing written content, go and check out the sister blog, which is paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. If you want to help out the show right now in a way that takes less than 30 seconds, I'd really appreciate you clicking the review section, you know, a thumbs up, some stars, a nice comment. You know the game now, folks. It's always very helpful and always greatly appreciated. And finally, folks, if you want to support the show directly, if you want to help see us grow, help me get new equipment, new product to review, that kind of thing, or hey, maybe you just want to help keep the lights running, then consider joining our wonderful Patreon family. Patreon is the platform by which you, the public, can support independent content creators such as myself. Though it's not just a GoFundMe, it's not just a donation, you do get your money's worth, you get early access to Paul or Nothing content, early access to Macket in Your Attic content, you get access to the video feed which is never going to be available except for on Patreon, you get that early, you know, I record all my episodes on Zoom now, anything I record, no matter how far in advance it is, goes straight on the Patreon there, for example my conversation with Ken Michaels about Off The Ground has been on the Patreon for a good couple of months now actually so if you want to skip ahead you can definitely go and check that out by becoming a patreon patron you also get access to bonus episodes lost episodes and even scripts for the show if that's your jam but before we begin i want to quickly thank all of my current patreon patrons including andy cochran guy jenkinson richard campbell kim christopher newman mrs p broderick harper moti ryber robert shuley Christian Perry, Richard Driver, Chris Atkinson, Richard Biddington, Mr. B, Teresa Brader, Stephanie Miller, Lou DiLonardo, Cheryl McCoy, Katrina S, Sam Hode, Anastasia L, Robert Carabelli, Warren Butson, and Matt Phillips, who you might just hear on later this episode. Right, give you a quick, mercifully short one there, folks, because this is going to be quite a long episode. So let's put McCartney 3 to bed once and for all until the archive collection comes out in six months or something like that. Hey, let's crack on. One, two, three, let's go. Right, everyone, it's now time for me to bring on the first of today's guests, yes, plural, to help me through my homework here. He's a dear friend of both the show and myself, and together we reviewed Three Imagined or McCartney 3 Reimagined back in spring when it first came out digitally, though... I also must think that, well, plus, since I spent so much of my recent time with this particular person talking about McCartney 3 proper anyway, I also felt like it really wouldn't be right if he wasn't the co-chair here. So with that in mind, everyone, please welcome back the Lennon to my McCartney, Mr. Dylan Seavey. What's going on, dude? 
Well, I'm honored to be the first of the guests, and I want them to all know, and I want everyone listening to know that I deserve this top billing. And, uh, you know, the rest of them, you know, I don't know who they are. I'm sure they're lovely people, but frankly, they can go fuck themselves. Oh, you don't want to follow you. No, definitely. No, definitely not. Exactly. I'm just kidding. I'm, <laughs> I'm the worst person alive. They're all amazing. Don't listen to me. No, uh, but thank you, though, for helping me to come back and finish this mother off once and for all, because I've got too many McCartney 3 episodes, and three of my McCartney 3 episodes are in my top 10 downloaded episodes of all time. Same thing happened with Egypt Station. I'm sure I would have done 10 episodes on New as well when that came out. But before we get into the nitty-gritty today, and I wanted to ask you this when we were recording Macu in your attic just a few minutes ago, uh, which version of the Let It Be collection have you pre-ordered for yourself? <laughs> um I have yet to pre-order anything, I knew you'd um, say that. I knew but I, but I, I have a sneaking. I, I do want to get one of them, but I have a sneaking suspicion. Um, the last few big things that have come out, um, my dad has had a great time. Uh, excuse me, getting for me as a Christmas gift. So I'm going to wait to see if he goes that route first, and if he doesn't, then uh, you know I'll, I'll probably do. To be honest, I haven't even looked into what all the editions are, but Mm -hmm. if there's a a standard edition that's got the remastered album and a decent chunk of the bonus tracks and outtakes, I'll go for whatever two or three disc set that is. That doesn't exist, I'm afraid. You can either get the album on its own, remastered by Giles Martin, great, on CD or vinyl, or you can get the five vinyl box set and a book, or you can get the six CD set and a book. There's no like, oh, do you just want the Glyn Johns remixes? Yeah. No, you can't. You've got to buy everything. And that's why I've invested in the five LP and book box set. It's going to be so heavy, you can murder someone with it by smacking them over the head with it, you know? Do we have a track listing confirmed yet or no? Yeah, like Susie Parker's not on it. Um, the Rooftop Concert's not on it. Uh, yeah, it's it's probably the most controversial in terms of what's been left off. Like uh, we, we mentioned Revolution 29 on Machinatic uh-huh. earlier, but no Susie Parker. What? Like, I get that Disney wants the only place you can access the rooftop concert to be Disney Plus. I get that. I'm not saying that that's good business practice, but it's going to make them a lot of money because people are going to have to go to Disney Plus or the Disney YouTube channel to watch the whole rooftop concert whatever but come on like why is that not just a disc by itself seven disc box set (laughs) here here i was uh wondering if they'd have the balls to put out commonwealth and they're not even putting out Susie parker (laughs) commonwealth yes (laughs) unreal back to your commonwealth countries also folks um Go and check out the Patreon to hear me and Dylan talk about Commonwealth on a uh, a failed podcast that we started about. <laughs> you know, um, we tried. Which is, no, no, but it was great because it's nice to have actual bonus content that's not released out there to the wider world and it's fully edited. I, I still think it was really good. I just wish that there was that gap in the market for it to have made that impact. But that's what we're doing right One now. Day. That's what One we're day right now, man. Oh, also, folks, uh, this won't be appearing on the episode, obviously, because the podcast is an audible medium. But I do, in fact, now have a Paul or Nothing T-shirt, which you can be able to wish you oh, this fucking camera. I, I can confirm. <laughs> you can sort I, of make out, yeah. 
I can confirm as the second auditory presence here that he does have a Paul or Nothing t-shirt that he's wearing right now. And it's something my sister got me for my birthday. It's the most thoughtful. My, my, my mom got me temporary secretary, secret friend on 45. My sister got me a Paul or Nothing shirt. And me, I got myself the Art of McCartney triple LP set. You've made oh. it so easy on yourself and your family. Yeah. No, no. Like, it's good to have a thing, I feel. Yeah. Like, a thing where you don't mind no matter what. Like, in the past, it was Warhammer or Star Wars or dinosaurs, you know. Now, you know, get me anything with a Jurassic Park logo on it. I'm going to be happy. Also, folks, if any of you out there have a Laserdisc copy of Jurassic Park, hit me up. I will pay out the nose for it. Laserdisc. Like, we were talking about dead formats earlier. Um, St. Vincent, you can buy her latest album on 8-track which I think is so cool. Not even McCartney had the balls to do that. And I reckon that was literally like her doing, so yeah, I'll do three Imagine for you. How many uh, formats you put in that, Paul? Is the one that you haven't done? I would I would buy an micro CD. Oh, yeah, I'm going to have to do a St. Vincent podcast one day, mostly because I fancy her, but that's another story. Uh, <laughs> now, on to today's business, my first proper question do you think this is the last we're going to hear of McCartney 3 until the inevitable archive release? Or do you think that there's still some stuff that is going to be eked? Because, like, you know, like, get enough when we had them, like, months after Egypt Station. Do you reckon we're going to get something like that? I, I feel like they have thoroughly milked this cow. I feel I feel like the the Idris Elba track that we'll be discussing in a minute is, is in some ways kind of the now same just, yeah. you know it's like you, you thought that three imagine be the last thing but then of course you know a little bit later like oh we have, we have one extra one here you know like i i i think at this point they've got to be done with it uh mm-hmm. now i'm not saying that as wishful thinking or anything i just you know i think it's it's run its course it's been almost a year now you know let's uh let's let's move on paul and mpl I'm annoyed that that burp was actually caught on the audio. Then I thought I muted that. That's really annoying. Um, <laughs> no, um, we've also discussed, and folks, um, me and Dylan have discussed this a lot on the Three Imagine Now uh, album re- review. So you might want to skip some of this, but we're also going to have some new chat here as well. Yada, yada, yada. Don't mind this. We've spoken about this before, the idea that McCartney originally was like, oh, McCartney 3, there's like 700 tracks I've recorded for this album. And then he puts out 13 and he goes, actually, no, McCartney 3 itself is a whole big bonus track. There's no extra material here. Bam, releases the When Winter Comes music video. Winter Sun at the end. It's like, stop lying to me, McCartney. How many songs are there in these sessions? The Paul McCartney Project wants to know. Beatle Bible wants to know. We need to settle this. Most importantly, Paul or Nothing wants to know. But this is what's going to bring us on to the first conversation we're going to have here today. Of course, I've mostly brought you on to talk about Idris Elba, and I know we've kind of talked about the bonus songs before, but this is something that I really want to do justice and make sure we've discussed it all before I put McCarty 3 in the attic, shall we say. And, of course, I do the Hot Hits and Cold Cuts side series. I love me a bonus track. You know I love a bonus track. I'm all about Oué Soleil and um, Daytime, Nighttime Suffering. That's my jam. I'm a secret friend, you know. But it's not an understatement to say that the four McCartney 3 bonus tracks were not well received. Is that correct? You, you mean the, the, the Japanese bonus tracks? Yeah, um, 
I mean, at the end of the day, it's, you know, we'll, we'll talk about each one a little more in depth, but it's like, how excited can you be? I mean, it's not like we're getting any massive, uh, realization here I, I i guess probably the most interesting one is is the slide and jam Dusseldorf, Dusseldorf jam um but yeah it, it seems like man to to make a big enough deal out of it and to make people go that much out of their way for this extra quote-unquote content um content. Yeah, yeah but you know if this was your standard itunes bonus track or spotify exclusive tracks or your even your best Ooh, buy if all four came on once there was one bonus cd exactly. that had all four tracks Ooh, i it might have a, actually picked that up it was a lot of work for uh, a lot of material that i don't really think was worthy of that amount of attention it's not like oh rain clouds or i'll give you a ring you know it's not like the great cock well, yeah, and seagull race well there's not a well yeah those are all new songs none of these are new songs <laughs> Why wasn't there a fifth one with uh, Winter Sun on it? You know, you could have got another color out of there, like magenta, maybe. Well, I know, you know, when he was doing the Flaming Pie archive set and um, came across When Winter Comes Again, I think that was the impetus for the the short film, uh, which then, you know, the, the new music was made for. I guess he just wanted the Winter Sun to be exclusive to that because, I mean... Again, how are you going to get someone to check it out and or mm-hmm. watch it or purchase it? You know, if you can just get it anywhere. Yeah. Um, Obviously, you know, you and me talk about streaming a lot. We're both guilty streamers. I think that's the best way. self-loathing streamers. I think that's yeah. the best way to, to uh, put it. And I think it's more than obvious that if McCartney had just put all four of these bonus tracks on one bonus copy of the album or just had the Japanese album be the bonus album, the exclusive album, then these would have been much more well-received. And it's it's a shame, really, because we're probably not going to have a re-evaluation of these bonus tracks for like 30 years now. And they are literally going to be the ebony and ivory of our era, really, because there was, there was nothing this pathetic on Egypt Station. The bonus content on Egypt Station from a double album, no less, was incredible was incredible well yeah and again i can't stress enough it would be one thing like i think there's something to be said like oh you know okay here here's a version of say 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 where paul is singing michael's parts and michael's singing paul's parts you know yeah. stuff like that you know that's interesting or, or you know here's a version of beautiful night you know from 10 years before it you know was on the record that stuff is interesting you know to me it would be like yeah, but this is like, here's something I recorded two days ago. <laughs> here's something I recorded two days ago that, you know, or even if, if to, to be honest, not to say that some of it's not interesting, but to have so much of the bonus material from the Flaming Pie set, just be like, here's demos of all the songs. It's like, that's fine. But this is a lot of space being taken up by something that, you know, I, I, it's always interesting, I guess, to hear the artist be working out ideas to a certain degree. But, you know, we, I think, naturally crave new, different material. And mm. for three, and and I have differing thoughts on all, all of the, the bonus tracks that we're about to discuss. But um, mostly my opinion is like, are these different enough 
where it really again warrants the attention that was that was put or or, or the um the the way that they went about it mm-hmm. you know i because i think the none answer of these is, like yeah. you must know the the twangy solo guitar version of uh something you know where george sure. basically rewrites the song in a demo retroactively none of these yeah. compare to that None of these compared to any of the George Harrison bonus content that we that, that we just got on the All Things Must Pass one because all of them are so different. Like mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, I Dig Love does not sound like I Dig Love. It's this Absolutely. really chug-a-lug rocker tune. It's like, oh, if there was something like that, that would be really interesting. But you know well, what? Yeah. You know what? Let's 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 get granular here. Let's let's go on to the Kiss of Venus, the phone demo. Let's have a hear. Obviously, folks, that's just for the people in, in the podcast in the future. Obviously, you're watching live right now. Whatevs. Um, so, yeah, a clip of that demo you just heard first debuted on an episode of the Soda Jerker podcast, another podcast that's had Paul on and not me. Uh, they're also friends of Eggpod, the London intelligentsia. Oh, look, we have a studio and a producer. Fuck off. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, Paul proved basically how he's got the iPhone of music this is where the paul mccartney iphone story comes from and i think he's told the iphone story as much as he's like do you know mother mary came to me in a dream do you know i wrote scrambled eggs i've got an iphone full of music and it's like he tells the story every time now and it is a fun concept but why not just give us 10 little riffs that he's been working on oh we can't because those might be songs on the next album and that happens so often with paul stuff it's like you know crazy dervish mood becoming um frank Sinatra's party he can repurpose his stuff all the time and his crew now know that you know there's there's a second guessing with the with the staff i feel like if this current staff was around say 30 years ago hot hits and cold cuts would have come out because they would have been happy with the product um Mm -hmm. but the management of paul mccartney is a a three-part episode in itself um yeah, this is the demo of Kiss of Venus, and it's basically just a slightly raspier version of the Kiss of Venus. It's it's interesting because I think um, for Paul and his voice to be put out here and laid bare and as rawly as it is, is quite interesting. Um, you know, it's so ubiquitous, the conversation of Paul's voice on this podcast. And the the final kiss of venus is one of my favorite vocals on mccartney 3 but here he is objectively struggling to hit the notes yeah uh i mean really the only obviously it doesn't have any the overdubs or anything this one appears to be more centered around the pact with illusion lyric um yeah honestly the only thing i have to say about this is kind of what you're talking about. Like, I know it's old hat to bring up the voice thing. Yes. You know, Paul's voice over the last decade or so is going to be an issue of contention. We're, issue not, of we're not demagogues here, Dylan. Say well, what you want to say. But, you know, it's look, it is what it is. We have to talk about it because it's there. And, you know, there are other vocals um, really probably dating back to early days on new. That's, that's probably the first example of like, Oh wow. He's, he's kind of allowing this sort Mm. of rougher take to it. But, you know, what makes Paul so great is that, you know, he's, he may be stubborn about his voice, 
but he's not dumb. I mean, he knows. He he very clearly is aware of his limitations, and I think you could see that in McCartney three, two, one, where he was exactly. I'll play. Maybe I'm amazed. I'll play it. I'm gonna sing it. (laughs) But he, you know, he knows for a song like this because he has to put a little more work into making it sound good. And and he did that. I do think the the vocal on the record turned out really well. So it's one of those things where it's like, there's a part of me that's always fascinated to hear the creative process uh, actually happening. But with this, it's like, it's so similar structurally to the, what is on the record. I think we're and, missing the harpsichord mid-length. Yeah, it's, and that's, it's, and that's it's, about it, isn't it? Yeah, and there's a couple other acoustic overdubs I think on it, um, but yeah, overall it's like okay, it's a it's a rough version of the song where his singing he he doesn't have that mindset of okay, I got to cut a really good vocal here. It's just I'm going to record this so I remember it for my mm-hmm. own sake. And it's like, well, it, you know, yeah, if we're speaking pretty objectively here, his voice doesn't sound good on it, and it's not really pleasing to listen to. He's not hitting the notes. It's so sad that, like, you know, when Paul's like, if the song was good enough, you'd remember it. If John forgot it and I forgot it, it wasn't a good song. Now it's he has the phone, and yeah. it's not because he the bad songs. It's just he's an old man and he can't remember all this crap. And for him to do this and for him to put it out there, like for him to clearly put out material that he might not be objectively proud of, is still quite brave and interesting. I agree, one hundred percent. But, but that doesn't mean it's great to listen to. <laughs> no, no, no. You know, you know like, um, you can have a movie that's interesting, but you don't actually engage with it on an emotional level. And I didn't engage with this on an emotional level. However, something interesting I did find was actually a quote on where this song actually came from. And I didn't mention it in the original episode, so I'm just going to quickly go through a quote here. Uh, it was inspired by a book Paul was reading, and he said, ah, you know what, I'll do the voice. I had a cool little book from Jules Holland that wife had given me, kind of an astrology book, all about the planets and the movements and the fantastic synchronicity of it all. A fascinating book, actually, when the planets go through all these little things, and if you look at a graph, as it were, all of them are like, make a lotus, it's trippy. There were some of these great phrases, like the kiss of Venus was one of them. So I was loving that book, and I was making up a song about that, but it was an instance of forcing myself to write. I felt good after it, though. Yeah, it's a pretty good song. I haven't felt like I had time to record it. But I will. And yeah, there is an alternative universe where this song, like you say, is called Packed with Illusions. And, you know, I can imagine this being like a a kind of link track on on a Wings album or something. Just like that. things of... And then just straight into... Into Lavatory Little. Or your favourite song, Deep Down, with those fantastic synthy horns that I know you love. If there was a world where we still had to deal with the five plus minutes of Deep Down without even having the gift of the Gis of Venus slightly beforehand, that would be a world I wouldn't want to live in. So I'm glad that that's not the case. Let's move on to the song that we are probably going to praise here, the Dusseldorf Jam of Sliding. Let's take a listen. Okay, dude, now we're talking. This is actually closer to new material worth shelling out for. And if I had to choose a single colour bundle CD box set with a bonus song, it would have been this one. Accidentally, I bought the Kiss Venus one. I think that was due to stocking 
issues, but whatever. The audio itself is taken from a sound check during a performance on Saturday, the 28th of May, 2016, on the one-on-one tour. Of course, by the time this took place, Paul was constantly selling out his sound check tickets. And so I'm sure there were many people in Dusseldorf, yeah, who were absolutely beside themselves when this song was released on McCartney 3. I, McCartney 3 must have sold well, in at least in Dusseldorf, because of this, you know. Um this is as close to a worthy bonus track, I'd say. Or is it still just a curiosity for you? No, I, I, I think this is uh, definitely the most worthy. On a few levels, uh, I think the most interesting aspect of it for me is a lot of the skeleton of the song is there. And to me, there's there's kind of two aspects of it that make it the song. First is obviously the riff. But the second are the shifting chords behind the riff. You know, it's not just staying on one chord the whole time, Mm -hmm. which makes me wonder, you know, when Paul's sound checking, obviously he is checking his bass on some songs, he's checking his guitar and others. Mm -hmm. So I would love to know what exactly he's playing here because either he's playing the guitar and writing the riff Mm-hmm. And I believe it would be not Brian who would be playing. Yeah, Rusty? Brian, I guess. Brian or Rusty? No, Brian usually plays bass when Paul is playing guitar. Rusty, right. I think, is always on guitar. Right. So if that's the case, then you've Do got Do they deserve Brian. a songwriting credit? Uh, you, you could argue, Ooh. I mean, if this is truly just a jam, you know, if this isn't something that he's showed them at any other point in time and and – Brian's coming up with that shifting chord progression on the bass underneath or Rusty or Brian is coming up with that riff and then Paul's figuring out what to do under it. So I would really love to know what is is happening there. Like that aspect, because it's not like you just hear the riff. You're hearing the chord progression too that eventually ends up on the record underneath it. So you're hearing a large aspect of the songwriting process happening here. And that is super fascinating to me. And then it's in some ways you could argue it's um, like a a parallel to the album version of Helter Skelter with the anthology version of Helter Skelter, you know, the the kind of smoky downbeat one. This this is that version of Sliden where it never takes off. It never explodes. It, it, It sort of just stews and it vibes a little bit. And it's it's really cool. And it's it's enjoyable to listen to. And it's it's fascinating. I, I definitely think this is the most worthy of the four. Obviously, you know, we've seen Paul demo songs in uh, sound checks before. She's My Baby, for example, was yep. debuted in like 75 in a sound check. And it's always interesting to me to wonder how much of this was thought of beforehand, like you say, how much it was done on the day. Because I don't think I'm stepping out of turn here when I say McCartney... And all of the Beatles were not jammers. They weren't a jam band. They didn't make, they came in with a song. This is how it goes. We'll do it. I don't see McCartney going, right, okay, let's all just fuck about in the studio for three days. What's the point? I'm a genius. I can write these songs while I'm sleeping. And the idea of even just calling this a a jam is, is interesting for me. And... 
as much as like, you know, Three Imagined is this laid back ambient stoner rock album, this is that. This is so slow and languid and hypnotic and murky and atmospheric. And it is so unlike the other three tracks. It really is. It is different enough. Uh, It relates to Paul's comments how this is the song he'd like to play live if he ever does return to touring again, because this would sound amazing. I would love to see the Arctic Monkeys cover this song or Kasabian when they find a new lead singer that doesn't beat his partner. Uh, you know, just, just any uh, news, any of the modern rock bands with a good bass sound, they would absolutely kill this song. And like, not only is the music good here, it's my favorite kind of Paul McCartney trivia where it's, it, it's just interesting. <laughs> like, it's, it's a song being born in front of us in theory, if all the, you know, statements are true. And, you know, to see to see Paul spread his legs and go, push, and it, it comes out like, like that, and it's crying, and you've got to spank the song a bit. It's beautiful to, you know, to hold it in his arms. And It is. I mean, th- this is as fascinating to me as uh, any, any Beatles demo, uh, not to say that. You know, this is necessarily as good. It ain't. As it ain't people. circles. It ain't yeah. circles, bro. Come on. <laughs> uh, well, I, it ain't sour thought. milk sea. But, yeah, yeah. Oh, sour milk sea. That that's really fascinating. But um, yeah, no, I, I think it's. Uh, I think it's really intriguing and captivating on a lot of levels, and and yeah, the fact that on top of that, it's. Uh, subjectively enjoyable as well mm-hmm. like it's not it's not just like oh this is interesting it's like no this also sounds good like you, you can throw this on and, and have this be sort of like a mood piece mm-hmm. um yeah i'm i'm a fan of it it's it's definitely my favorite of the four tracks um yeah yeah i would have i mean he could have took this to youth and done a third fireman album and just done something really interesting with that. Uh, you mean a fourth fireman album i know you're not disrespecting either strawberries ocean ships forest or rushes electric arguments is the third oh fuck oh no oh see i was thinking uh twin freaks was the third but that's a different guy as well wow do a, wow. Do a, 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 and, do a and you folks. call yourself a paul mccartney podcaster throw my hat on the take floor off that and shirt and, uh, Okay. <laughs> Any excuse to take your shirt off, folks. Any excuse. In third place, we have a track that definitely feels like a professional demo rather than a noodle Paul recorded on his phone. This is Lavatory Lil. Right. I'll get the repeat thoughts out of the way quickly. Do I consider this to be good enough to be like, warrant a bonus song? No. Uh, do I think that it's good enough as a free bonus track if it's on Spotify? Um, maybe, you know, like if this was a free download on McCartney's website, I wouldn't find it nearly as offensive. Um, it's clearly more purposeful as a recording, both in how the song is finished very lyrically and melodically, but also in like the tone and feel, uh, even without the very heavy handed Abe Laboral Jr. drumming and the growling guitar sound, it still has that kind of same bite and wit and groove. It's all scaled back a bit, though, and it's almost like this is the version he showed Mary McCartney in the kitchen while she was cooking dinner for him during during lockdown. Like, you can, you can literally picture that. Um, but is this demo a winner, or is it really moving in for the kill? <laughs> you should be ashamed of yourself. Um, you know, I'm actually 
kind of come around to this um, because for a couple reasons. Because um, you don't like the three imagined version. No, I do like the three met the, oh. the 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 Josh Homme version is is one of the I think three or four that I did like and and you just saying this is, sounds like the one he showed Mary McCartney maybe this was the one he showed Josh Homme because it kind of has a similar sort of like creepier laid back feel it, it's not mm. as um, it, it's a lot more delicate than or not as heavy handed as the album version um, and this is a song like. You know, for me, there's seven of the 11 tracks on McCartney 3, I'd say, are ones I really like. The, those ones will make my personal, like, be, best. Playlist, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then the other four, uh, Lavatory Lil's not in that, but I, I don't necessarily dislike it. it. To me, it's just sort of like, a t- it, to me, it's like a lesser version of OU. From the first McCartney record, like that's a nice that's comparison. Of, that's a nice comparison, actually. Yeah, you know that that sort of mid-tempo, swanky little blues rocker. Um, but in a weird way, and and I don't necessarily think I like uh, prefer this demo, but it is interesting to hear it played on the acoustic. It almost sounds like a late fifties, early sixties something that you know Muddy Waters might have demoed. And please do not. Do not mistake that for me saying this is on par with anything that Muddy Waters did because it's not. But just sonically, like hearing the acoustic play that riff and hearing him kind of whisper a little bit, it gives the song almost like a little bit more intent to me, which is why I like. And like, look, I love Queens of the Stone Age, and there's a part of me that yeah that wishes that Josh's version had been sort of more balls out. But I I do think that that sort of creepy aura adds to it a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I've come around to it. I, I agree. It's like, I'm not going to shell out a bunch of money for the, the bonus version with, with this song on it. But um, I think, it's, I think it's interesting. I think this is a fantastic representation of the 2020 old man Paul voice. It's yeah. done so much better than anything else. That's even on the final album. Like, you know, the Kiss of Venus falsetto might be a little bit embarrassing at the best of times, but here he he puts that scratchy, weaker, clearly saved my voice for later because it's just a fucking demo kind of feel to it. And it's an awesome insight into how he might sing when people aren't necessarily meant to be listening. Like, I would totally take this over Do It Now or Women and okay. Wives, these other weird vocal things he's trying to be doing over, over the past few years I, I wish he'd just stick with this very basic setup it's got a mccartney one feel to it it does feel homemade homespun made in rock down all of that um but I forgot about rock down yeah <laughs> I, I think i've just tried to push that out of my head as much as possible I if if I ever meet Paul, I'm going to rib him for that. I'm like, I don't it's care. So, I don't care if you blackball me, Paul. I will rib. Well, you for of all that. the I'm, embarrassing things you've done, rock, rock down is is up there. Yeah, <laughs> thumbs aloft, thumbs aloft. <laughs> Everyone go, yeah, 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 yeah. And now say, whoa, 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 whoa. I'd love to do a That's compilation than of rock that. down. I'll take yeah. that over. Rock down. Uh, I mean, we won't go into the. Uh, Trip in the Life, fantastic versions of all of that crap. Uh, that's the, probably some of the most egregious stuff. Um, obviously, this is also the song that's had the most revisionist history in recent years. Like, I couldn't imagine 
a Paul McCartney song having more revisionism in the less space of time than this song because originally it was definitely about someone we knew then it swiftly became someone about you know it's just a made up person then he said it was fully made up do we think Heather Mills lawyers actually got involved with this song and said you cannot say this is about Heather Mills or we will sue you well you know the whole this argument's really interesting and I'm, I'm going to do my best to not hop on a soapbox here I mean, um, Untitled Beatles podcast basically confirmed it for me. Like, it's all in the court documents. Uh, she, sure. she she wanted to have a a, a, a bedpan, basically, and Paul's like, I'm not sleeping with an old woman. And so he'd have to carry her to the bathroom. Yeah. And that's I mean, where Lavatory Mill comes from. And it's like, if that's true... Yeah, of it, course, look, of course th- this, this is the thing. A lot of... Beatles fans, you know, and I think that Beatles fans in general are are a pretty tolerant bunch because we our favorite group is all based around peace and love and acceptance. Um, So for me, I'm always really put off by the massive hypocrisy in the way that people treat Heather Mills and talk about Heather Mills because look. I am not defending her. Like, I don't, I don't know the story, but that's the thing. A lot of us do not know the story. Did she do some awful things and say some awful things? Yes. 100%. Paul hit her? But, but, but that, we, that's the thing. We don't know, but people talk about Heather Mills like she is Satan reincarnated. Yeah, and yeah. How, how could she do this? to Paul McCartney to like, and it's like, man, we don't know the story. And, you know, Paul, again, we, we also don't know everything that's ever happened in Paul's life, but we certainly know that he's had more than his fair share of moments of not being the greatest person in the world. It was a doomed relationship from the start, but people treat Paul. It was was the most expensive bounce like you know well, post relationship bounce well, they, but they treat him like he's this helpless victim like please he's paul mccartney he like not saying that it wasn't emotionally taxing for him or a terrible situation and certainly i feel for that but we don't know the whole story and for for whatever it's worth you know there are songs that you can hear between uh Chaos and Creation, Memory Almost Full, and even Electric Arguments, where you can kind of tell he's letting out his frustrations about it. And But he's never gone on public record since their split saying mm-hmm. anything terrible about her. And then on top of that, I think there is a video that was put up um, during like the, the promo stuff for McCartney 3, where it appeared as if Heather was was there because that's the thing people forget they have a kid together throughout everything that's happened they've had to co-parent and I think both of them have done a tremendous job of keeping their daughter kind of out of the spotlight so hopefully she lives somewhat of a normal life of course never gonna be fully normal but you know for for any of the terrible things that she presumably did or he presumably did or what we know happened or what we didn't know happened like They've they've been co-parenting. They've been making at least that aspect of it work. And it looked like they were together in this one video. I'll see if I can find the screenshot and send it to you. But this I would be surprised to a degree 
if he was so blatantly talking about it at first, like, oh, mm-hmm. this is about someone that I know, but Ooh. no one will ever know who it Whoa. is. Like, <laughs> you know yeah, that we're not yeah. stupid. He's being but cheeky. at the same time, it is sort of like, well, if it's not like if it's not her, who else could it be about? And there haven't been a whole lot of uh, great guesses. Laboratory so- Lynn, maybe it's about Linda. Like just one time on the Wings Over the World tour, she just had a really big yeah. poo in the toilet or something. I don't. Know. I don't know. All all, all I those know veggie is- burgers do compact in your lower colon, though. Yeah. All I know is that a lot of uh, Beatles fans are really ugly and hypocritical when the Heather Mills things come comes up and uh you know as it pertains to this song i don't know i don't want to say i don't care because it's certainly interesting and i I, like i i I do want to know to a degree but whether or not it's about her you know it's it's like let him do his thing let him write his song whatever songs are about anyone else like it's whatever let's just judge the art based on what it sounds like and what it is it'll be one of those things where it's like look paul i'm not gonna ask you to say yes or no you just squeeze my hand if I'm correct, yeah? Is the song about Lavatory Lil? Sure. And then just, and then, and then just look away. <laughs> yeah. and, you know, I'm sure once you meet him that he will absolutely... No, no, no. We're going we're gonna to have a, a few... We're, we're going to go on holiday together like uh, Brian sure, sure, and John. Sure, sure, you know? sure, 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 sure. Uh, yeah. Defo. We're going to buy an island together. <laughs> Finally, then- uh, we're going to move on to the last so-called bonus tracks of the day. No prizes for guessing what this is. This is the studio outtake of Women and Wives. That was good. <laughs> if there's a song that ever had the potential to deliver something different that I might enjoy, it would be this one. Uh, I would love to reassess this track and reappraise it without St. Vincent. Um, I've made no effort to hide my dislike of this song. And I was curious when this was announced. And you know what they say about curiosity and cats, don't you? <laughs> got two cats i live that life yeah um as you just heard there folks that's not what paul does here outside of a few minor changes there is not at all enough to justify this being a purchase like not only is this my least favorite song on the final album it's my least favorite bonus track as well i struggle to even think of the differences off the top of my head without consulting my notes here because they are so similar and I've got so many nitpicks to come here, so I'm just going to let you take the floor. Are you defending this or attacking it with me? Um, Kind of somewhere down the middle. So you and I, I mean, I think you and I feel similarly about probably about half the record, and then we, we have a lot of differences in opinion. But this is, I think this is the one song that you and I both agree on it is not a highlight for either of us. This This is probably my second least favorite track on the yeah. record. And I, yeah. I, I enjoy it not significantly more than my least favorite track, but my least favorite track is deep down, which is deep down, which inexplicably to this day, I will never like all of your inane attempts to try to defend that song completely lose me still. But Luca Perazzi likes it. So that I don't care what Luca, look, <laughs> Luca, yeah, yeah. Right. Look, Luke, I've never met you. I've got your book. I love it. It's fantastic. But like, come on, like, <laughs> stop. Just stop. Anyway. Hey, why you got to talk about a Luca like that? Hey, I come on. I don't, um, yeah, it's just not a favorite song. I don't, I don't hate it by any means. Um, what I will say, what I will say is a positive 
for this bonus track is I, I do sense a little less of the hammed up vocal. It's a little less, you know, hear me women and what it's a little more hear me women and, you know, actually, Hey, it's me and my voice. I'm singing. It's, it's not exactly a, uh, a beautiful grand melody or anything, but to me, I'd rather hear him sing it. It's for instance, for me, um, I know that you've you've got a friend who's a big uh, Metallica fan, so maybe you'll appreciate this. But as someone who's not a Metallica fan, you know, it's hard for me to take a song seriously with a vocal along the lines of, you know, Exit Light and so on and so forth. Into night. When, when Metallica did that song at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame 25th anniversary set, you know, Hetfield's getting older. He knows he kind of has to adjust some things too. And to hear him actually sing it, you know, exit light, you know, there's still a little bit of rasp in there, but he's actually singing it more. I'm like, I kind of like this song more. And that's how I feel about women and wives where it's like, oh man, I wish he just hadn't done this stupid, like he kept calling it his lead belly voice. And this song sounds absolutely nothing like Nothing like lead belly. Like, let me, I've got a six disc lead belly box set that I've been listening to since I was 14 years old. There's no lead belly film. This film sounds like, but where I'll attack it with you is it's so similar other, you know, to the final recorded song, which is not one of my favorite songs anyway. So it feels unnecessary. Then the biggest major change is the bridge. It's a different bridge. And I think the lyrics in this song are a little bit clunky anyway. It's it's the lyrics are a very nice sentiment. I appreciate the sentiment. I just don't love what the actual content is. It feels a little moon June cut and dry mm. to me, like no real nuance or interest to it. The title and implies a much better song than you do. It does. I completely agree. Um, but the bridge on this demo is even worse to me it's even more like i'm gonna spell this out for you i'm gonna leave absolutely no room for like um uh what's the word i'm looking for like you know trying to like figure out what this might be about or anything like that it's like nope this is what you're saying is what you mean and there is a beauty to that i'm not saying that simplicity or directness is a bad thing whatsoever some of my favorite no, songs are Paul's like that. built his career off sidestepping everything slightly yeah th- this to me it just feels enough. like i don't know it, it feels a little a little bit like a lecture and the, <laughs> the the demo lyrics are even more egregious uh than the officially released uh at least the bridge section which i think is the only different lyrical section so you know I, from a vocal standpoint i actually slightly prefer this version um from a lyrical standpoint I don't. So ultimately it's sort of like a draw. It's unnecessary. Uh, I, I still think Kiss of Venus is maybe still my least favorite, just because, probably because I like the song more. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's a worse vocal. Like there's no real reason for me to go back and listen to either of them. But if I'm going to go back and listen to one of them, I'd actually probably rather listen to women and wives. Cause it's like, Oh, I want to hear this song where he's singing it like a human and not a puppet. So yeah. Just to finish your point, I would agree with you that Dusseldorf Jam is the best one on sale yes. here. Though I would say that uh, the Women and Wives demo is probably the worst one. But again, that just comes to the fact that I really dislike Women and Wives. Well, so there's obviously a lot of yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not a huge fan either. So, 
And now, everyone, it's time for us to move on to the new content, a new piece of audio that we get to talk about now. And it's the When Winter Comes, uh, the new imagined remix by actor, DJ and musician Idris Elba, a.k.a. the fucking The Wire, Star Trek. He's been in everything. He's, he's been a potential James the Bond. Uh, Luther, The Office, yeah. He's been in Every, uh, uh, Thor, he's he's uh, mm-hmm. the all-seeing eye guy in Thor. Like he's everywhere. I knew he was a musician. I had a, I had a couple of his tracks and a couple of his like DJ sets that I'd listened to randomly through throughout the years. But I never realized he was in such a class where he'd be able to talk to McCartney about music and McCartney would listen. And I think that's very interesting. But before we get into Idris, we've had a couple of months to ruminate over three imagined slash McCartney three imagined. And I wanted to know if you've warmed to it at all or if you still have the exact same issues you had with it before. Well, you know, my my issues with it are really just a, a, a purely subjective thing because I, obje- I think from an objective standpoint, it's a fantastic marketing move, uh, at least for... Um, you know, members of the younger generation, just mm-hmm. to at, at least, you know, raise awareness for it. Um, from a subjective standpoint, uh, there are probably still only four tracks that uh, I really go back to. And I, it was so funny to me, like, to me, the Phoebe Bridgers track is so far and away above everything else mm-hmm. on the record. And maybe it's just because that was more of what I wanted I think I when I saw the list of artists, I wanted to hear those artists, I guess, cover these songs. But we talked the last time we talked about this, we talked about, you know, because everything everything is just called the remix. You know, it's the mm-hmm. Beck remix, the Phoebe Bridget. But like, yeah, the Beck remix, that is like a classic remix. The Phoebe Bridger song is a cover. The Idris Elba song is a brand new song. You know, it's it's yeah. like they're calling everything a remix. And, and granted, look, you know, I'm a musician. I don't have as big a hand in like a lot of um, production decisions or yeah, marketing. There is a decisions. difference between a remix and sampling. And this Idris Elba song, it feels like a new song that also happened that to sample, sample a bit of when it comes. Yeah. That, that, yeah, that's exactly how I feel. So, for me, there's just a lack of, of unity across the record that makes it not really good. And then on top of that, just the fact that so much of it does fall under that context of like, this exists almost solely to be a vibe. And it's not that I can't appreciate a good vibe, but nine times out of 10, I need more than that. And to hear certain songs like a song like Find My Way, which has such a joyous melody and chord progression to be stripped of both of those things mm. to me is, is I don't want to say it's stupid because I love Paul and I love Beck, but I'm like, what's what's the point of this? A song like Pretty Boys, which you could not be more wrong about with your opinion for, and, and again, and I love- I have, I, I have warmed to that track since. Well, yeah, because you have two ears and a heart and eventually you're going to come around <laughs> to it. Two ears and a heart. You know, it's- What's um, that from? That's from something. It is, and I don't know, but uh, I-, just, I You, Karen, talking, I'm going on Wikipedia. Um, Who is- But it's like, there? and I love Krungbin, but, and it's the same thing though. It's like, you took out 
the melody and you you created this soundscape where there's not a lot to grab onto and then you interpolate interpolated like the one aspect of the vocal that's like not a very pleasing melodic sample like Like out of context i I know why you don't like it i i truly do i'm not saying i don't empathize with you at all you you're very erudite you're very clear in what in what you're saying i'm just on the opposite end of the spectrum sure that's the beauty of it i'm a vibe guy man i love to put on an album and not listen to it it sounds awful but like i love to put on holidays and then carry on with my writing and focus no and there's music i feel like that where you know i have my like i'm gonna throw this on while i clean or i'm gonna throw this on while i write or i'm gonna throw this on while i work and you know more often than not it's you know classical or jazz or something like that but even with that i tend to when i study it more from a a content standpoint i still really like it when i Mm -hmm. like look at this and try to critique it and try to trust my ears i'm like i just don't i don't hear it i Mm -hmm. i don't like what is there in the find my way remix to listen to because you don't have that chord that great chord progression underneath the melody to make it really shine it just sounds like this lifeless limping 5 minute exercise which is so disappointing because when you know beck's catalog and how good he is i'm like why couldn't beck have just covered this song why couldn't he done what phoebe bridgers or josh homme did you know why why does ed o'brien a member of one of the most influential oh no no don't talk about the sliding remix we both hate that rightfully so so, man i I don't know the one thing so the the ones i'd go back to phoebe bridges and josh and then what i love about the anderson pack one is hey yeah let's sample it but let's yeah create this new soundscape around Mm -hmm. it not losing and and when winter comes for me i like it it's not in my upper echelon of McCartney three songs, but it's, it's clearly a beautiful melody and to hear it restructured into that brand new sign of like the, the brand new, like soul R and B soundscape. Like, Oh, it's, it's, oh, it's fantastic. Great, yeah. I love going back to that. I listened to that. I'm like, like, it's man, show that. In it as well as it. It's like, I want to, I want to like go to Beck and show him that and be like, shame on you, Beck. Because you could have done this. You're a loser, You're good baby. To do this, and you did the late. I mean, not the laziest. Ed O'Brien was the laziest. But I mean, Phoebe Bridgers turned "Kiss of Venus" into a Phoebe Bridgers song, which made me excited. Like that's what I want. I wanted to hear these songs in new lights, and I guess I technically did. But like, even I know that you love the Damon Albarn uh, "Long Tail Winter Bird," but it's not "Long Tailed Winter Bird." It's a completely lifeless, unmelodic. It, it, it like every now and then something pops in but it's just this like i'm gonna like make a garage band loop and pick one chord and press it and have it be this stupid loop i, I don't know it's completely useless to me most i haven't mentioned blood orange and deep down yet come on give them a shout out do you not like the added piano line? i think the less i say about deep down and any iteration of it the better just so you know, um, uh, Tracy Jordan in 30 Rock asks uh, Jack Donaghy, I'm going to make you a mixtape. You like Phil Collins? I've got two ears and a heart, don't I? <laughs> That's what it is. 
Wonderful. Because I don't like Phil Collins, but that's not a short for no. My, um, uh, my Dylan Hayden friend, Tom, my Tom Waits co-host, he's the biggest 30 Rock fan ever. He's going to be so happy about this. <laughs> yeah, well, Tom, if you're listening, I'm, I'm sure you're a great guy and I can't wait to meet you one day, but I'm so sorry to hear that you have such an irresponsible opinion about Bob Dylan. Dylan. <laughs> so we'll, we'll get to that another time. And I couldn't help but think of the intro to Watchmen when you were talking about... Um, uh, the times are a changing on our Mac it in your attic episode uh, ah, as well. Such an so in, good. like say what you like about Zack Snyder. He knows how to put a soundtrack in a movie and make it effective. Like that's, absolutely, that's absolutely. so good. So right. yeah, to answer your question after that long winded rant, no, I really don't feel any different. <laughs> <laughs> about you're not, you're not clamoring for any other albums to get the reimagined treatment. Then, like I think reimagined would be. I think it could be really good. What what I would want. But officially, not not the Denny Sywell remix or the or that no, other no, no, no. independent what, group that did the remix. But what Maka I would approved. what I would want is like I would want to hear, you know, a band like My Morning Jacket take a song like Slidin', like what can we do with this? Or a band, you know, Wilco, actually Radiohead, you know, any of these actual artists. You know, Fiona Apple, like, shit, what could Fiona Apple have done with, like, deep-deep feeling? System of a Down, Monkberry Moon Delight, come on. Get out of my life. But, um, no, like, Fiona Apple doing, like, deep-deep feeling or anything like that. um, I I don't know. I I guess for me, maybe it is just my lame traditionalist ear, but it's, like, more than anything, like, I hate to say I don't care about remixes or anything like that, but I'd rather hear a brand new take on a song by a different artist. I'd mm-hmm. rather have a cover album of any given album with, you know, kind of like um, what's the uh, what's the mag- Mojo magazine does that all the time, where it's like oh. they did the, the the 40th anniversary of Rubber Soul, where it's like, yep, the let it be one. I've got it on vinyl. I play yeah. it once a month. It's so like, fucking. You know what, Dylan? We should do that one as well. Actually, we should do some Mojo yeah. albums as well. That'd be that, good. I'm totally down. Well. That's the stuff that I want. You know, that's the stuff I'd prefer to hear. Um, so, anyway, as it pertains to the Idris track, um, yeah, this is not a remix. This is a brand new fucking song uh, that samples Longtail Winterbird for it to be called. The Idris Elba remix, honestly, is a, a disservice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the dude wrote a new song. <laughs> he sampled. Paul had nothing to do with this. Uh, well, no, Dylan, um, he didn't just write a song. He wrote a silly love song. You're the only one I live for. I fall in love with you every single day. I don't mean to be a right bore, but I agree with almost everything you say. You're like a dream come true. You are my silver lining. I always know you will always be there because I feel my heartbeat rising. That's a Pipes of Peace lyric. Come it's on. a Pipes of Peace lyric, and it has nothing to do with a long-tailed winter bird. So why are we calling this the long-tailed winter bird remix? This is a brand new song. Sampling, featuring Paul McCartney, whatever. Yeah, um, no, it should have been Longtail Winterbird feet Paul McCartney. <laughs> and to, I agree. And to that end, I prefer it to the Damon Alburn completely stupid remix that I know you like, but it's... it's Beautiful it's contrast hard. between the two, though. You would have never have guessed, apart from the sample, the... 
Besides that, there is nothing to indicate to the most advanced technological race that these are the same two songs at all. Well, yeah, you know, it, it, there is absolutely something to be said. Here's two very different artists and how they interpret what they want to do with the given source. Want to have more of that? Want to have more artists? Like, want to have yeah. three versions of Women and Wives, one by David Bowie, and you know, well, obviously not, but, but you know, you, you know what I mean. Well, that, like, that would be quite the undertaking. Um, um, but, women and wives. I, uh, it's, and you know, uh, maybe to that, yeah, to that degree, I, I prefer. Honestly, uh, it's it's got this very you know, kind of like a new age reggae feel to it, which is not my my bag. Uh, you know, almost reminds me of like something that Sean Kingston or Modest Yahoo might do. Which like Sean Kingston, I, I, I'm kind of so. Funnily enough, the was he the, the record- beautiful girl guy? Beautiful girl. Yeah, I was thinking of Sean Paul for a second then, but well, even but even that too. I mean, so funnily enough, the record store I used to work in had the biggest Looney Looney Tunes had the biggest reggae selection easily in the Northeast United (laughs) States. Um, Seriously, like our because my my old boss uh, has been DJing at the college radio station for over forty five years doing a reggae show. Um, so funnily enough, even working there, I am not super versed in the genre and the stuff that I do like is the classic stuff. I'm a fan of Toots and Jimmy Cliff and Bob Marley and Max Romeo and, Mm -hmm. um, and stuff like that. Um, but you know, I never really, you know, at a certain point, every genre evolves and, what reggae kind of has evolved into is just not something I'm a huge fan of. So I'm not Mm -hmm. really a huge fan of this because it has a lot of that influence in it. Um, But Mm -hmm. I'm fascinated. I I think that this uh, track is more fascinating than at least four or five other of the songs that made the album. I'm going to take a slightly different stance here, Dylan. Okay. Uh, of course, this song is preceded by a brand new listen through of the entire album. So I was already very well aware of this album and how it's structured. I was already very pleased with it. So I, I get to listen to an album that I already like, listen to it all the way through in order. Put what disc one on, flip that, put disc two on, flip that. And the the whole experience wasn't that I found very satisfying. I didn't feel like this was a Japanese bonus track that was slapped onto the end. Needlessly. This felt very purposeful. This is like a proper palate cleanser at the end of the album. Not to the degree of something like A Day in the Life. I would never say that. But this is certainly up there with like, you know, um, you know, the track that closed Egypt, Egypt Station, um, the, the three-part, um, oh my gosh, uh, right, Naked. Uh, naked, oh, uh, yeah, and, naked yeah, yeah, you know, some, something that kind of makes you go, right, folks, you are about to go back into the real world now, don't stress yourselves out a bit too much. And <laughs> I just enjoy, I hate to piss you off directly here, but I just I, I enjoyed the vibe, it's very light hearted, relaxed, chilled out. It's an album of stoner beats, it fits like a glove. We get some within you, without you laughter, which takes the edge off a lot. We even get the only utterance of the word maca on a song yeah. that I could ever think of and that in itself is extraordinary we also get um a, a lyrical reference to love me do in this in this mm-hmm. track like love me do and I'll love you true 
really, really fun. I also enjoyed the London aspect of this track. This is a very London song, obviously Liverpool textures, something we're very used to, but to hear like, yo, Maka, what's going on? Like you got that kind of London kind of thing going on. Those heavy London accents is a very fresh sound. Yeah, I really did enjoy it. I loved how different this was from the Damon Auburn one, just in terms of an artistic stance. I was even wondering whether the two parties were ever aware of what each other was doing or whether Paul just trusted that these two different artists would definitely create something different. Um, I also love its placement just on the final side. You get that huge Anderson Pack um, deep, deep feeling. And then you just get this really chilled out kind of, Thank you for listening to the album, folks. This has been really cool. You take care. Bye-bye. Peace and love. Um, yeah, this is actually an instance where, uh, you know, for anything I just said, I, I think that this creates a vibe that I think is more um, more something up my alley, even though I still wouldn't say that I enjoy the song all that much. It's, um, there's still something to grab. There is nothing to grab onto in the Damon Auburn version. You know, mm. there's there's no hook, no melody. You prefer no, this one, then? You prefer this one? I absolutely prefer this one because even though I don't particularly like it, this exists for me as like, okay, this is a sunny day, um, up, upbeat, mm-hmm. you know, vibe that also clearly has hints of melodicism. Um, there's just, there's more going on to it where I think I appreciate it a bit more on an artistic level. You know, not to say, you know, for however much I'm shitting on the Damon Auburn track right now, I'm not saying it doesn't take, you know, artistry to create. I mean, it absolutely does. There's so many subtleties and and nuances that go into it. Uh, But just from as a listening experience, even though neither of them are particularly things I enjoy, I, I always gravitate towards the tracks where there's something for me to grab onto. Mm -hmm. And with this, it's like, yep, there's a melody, there's a hook. There, everything that you just said, you know, mm-hmm. uh, him calling out Macca, making the Beatles reference, you know, actually having the the Winterbird sample come in here and there. I'm like, okay, this this is a more successful, in my mind, a more successful artistic experiment. Um, even though it's not a remix, <laughs> it's it's a new song. <laughs> now we've got to talk about physical format exclusives here. This was advertised as a physical format exclusive. I bought this fucking album because I thought this was the only way I'd ever get to hear this song. And then how how long was it? 13 days, 11 days, let's say 12, we'll call it 12, 12 days after the release of the physical format version of this album on Spotify, complete with a gold cube dice. This was released as a single. Now, if you had to choose the entire, go, go back to the entire three imagined, what, I, I find my way is the single, surely that had a video. So yeah. why was that not released as a single? Why is this now being released as a single? It felt very shallow to me. And it, and it, and it felt like someone at NPL just went, oh, actually, a lot of people have bought this on vinyl. That actually seemed to be quite vibing with it. Let's just release it on Spotify for free and make no money off it. I don't well, understand I, it. I don't understand it. Didn't at all. I think they've, probably you know made the money they thought they would make on it and said all right well because that's the thing like this stuff all has such a short shelf life i mean you know mccartney three made it to number one uh in the uk right 
Was mm-hmm. it UK or US number one? Yeah, Aegis Station, US number one, McCartney 3. McCartney 3, UK, UK. yeah, because Taylor Swift was over here. So um, the thing is, it's number one, and then the next week, it's barely in the top 40, and then the next <laughs> week, it's 200. Yeah. And, and it's not necessarily indicative of, of the quality of the record. It's just like, especially for a lot of legacy acts, that's how it goes, because you get mm. a lot of the hardcore longtime fans who immediately, they go out and buy something, but it's not going to have a lot of staying power, you know. It ain't going to go up against Donda, you know. <laughs> no, it's not, and and that's okay. It just is what it is. So my my guess is that they put this out as the vinyl exclusive. You can only get this here, and then I don't know. Probably sold anywhere between a uh, hundred and ten thousand copies, and they were like, "All right, this is not going to sell anymore." We we there was a very small window. Mm-hmm. We put it out. We did what we're going to do. Let's just throw it up there. That, that's imagined is not going to be in record stores for twenty years. You might get one. No, 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 no. It's it's not. It's still, it's still going to be band on the run, tug of war, flaming pie. You might get a chobber every now and then, but yeah, this honestly, isn't going to be on the shelves. No, man. I tell you what. I uh, the last time that I was in Walmart, uh, I went to the CD section, and you know what it was? It was. McCartney 3, Egypt Station, Band on the Run, and Wingspan. Wingspan? That's actually pretty cool, actually. I would have picked yeah. that up. <laughs> I was surprised, like, not pure McCartney, because usually, like, every time I ever go into a place like that, you look at the Beatles, it's like, there's a copy of Sgt. Pepper and one, you know, and, th- and that's it, you know. Um, so yeah, McCartney three, it's not gonna or three imagined is not gonna have this general greater public consensus staying power. It's mm-hmm. the staying power is gonna be mainly within the Beatles community. It's certainly not gonna have any staying power that McCartney three might have will not translate to three imagined. So yeah, my guess is like they had a window, they took advantage of it, they got your money, they got other people's money and mm-hmm. said, All right, well, let's throw it up now. Kind of surprising that they've thrown all that stuff up, that they haven't thrown up the Japanese bonus tracks. Yeah. Um, I guess this is just one of those situations where it's like a bit like the Let It Be album. There's very little you can do to please everyone. Uh, there's so much you, you you can do with this kind of thing, especially with the covers album as well. Um, did you see the interview Paul did with Idris Elba, by the way? I got to be honest, I did not. <sighs> To me, it just felt so procedural. Like, I've got to do this so I can be on Three Imagined. It it was so yeah. weird, and like he was I mean, like, "That's that's oh, how I felt a lot about of the Paul, movies, you, know. you know, which sucks because like I would love to hear an actual, honest to God conversation with some of the. You know, he talked to Chris Rock, and he talked to you know, great Bruce interview and Ed O'Brien, great. and and all this and and. It's not that they weren't interesting to one degree or another, but at a certain point, it's like, all right, you know, I what would Chris Rock and Paul McCartney actually talking sound like when they're not trying to shill something? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, that's that's what I'm more interested in. So yeah, I I admittedly didn't watch it, but I can't imagine I'm missing too much from a major uh, content standpoint there. No, I'd I'd love to sign a non-disclosure agreement and then go to dinner with Paul. Uh, that is and Chris Rock. That, 
That is the dream. Yeah, and Chris, Chris Rock. Man, I'm not I'm not looking over my shoulder for Beatles. I'm looking over my shoulder for Macca. Hey, listen, Michael. That's Michael. a deep cut Chris Rock reference, and I avoided controversy there very well. If you got that, there we go. I think I uh, think, yeah, <laughs> I mean, just be wary, because you know, Michael Scott got in trouble for doing his Chris Rock impression in the office. So you don't want to go down that road. Oh man. No, no. Any impression of Chris Rock I do is a Madagascar reference, obviously. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I do my best not to impersonate Chris. Dude, like I appeared on uh, another kind of mine quite recently and my desire to do a Yoko impression is so deep and dire, but there is no way you can do it without coming across as horrendously racist. You just can't do it. It's like you can't do a Jackie Chan impression. With, you know, it, it, it's just that kind of thing. If someone's got a certain accent, it is beyond the pale. And well, I, I give you, you major, respect that. You've got to respect that. I give that. you major props for for recognizing your privilege and recognizing your place. You're a better man than a lot of people. Oh no, I mean, I still have those thoughts, but then I have the count. I've I've got the angel on my shoulder. He's like Sam, Sam. You don't. You've you, got the you don't need to make another joke about Felicuti, you know. <laughs> you, you've got the gift that a lot of people don't have of self-awareness. Um, so, like, uh, so and yeah, it's, it's fun. Uh, it's fun to flirt with danger. It's fun, but like, yeah. don't get into bed with it. <laughs> so yeah, that's um. That's everything. So I, think, that's, yeah. I guess the that's the three imagined experience, isn't it? And the McCartney three bonus experience. Yeah, and, the, and the the entire McCartney three experience. Sadly, we still got quite a bit of this episode still left to go. But Dylan, thank you for being here, man. We've been talking for quite a few hours tonight. Everyone, go and check out the episode that I'll be doing with Dylan on Mac It in Your Attic. That will be out probably after this episode, I imagine. Even though this episode will probably still be delayed, and I've still got the off the ground episode to do and all that crap. But this will be out soon. Dylan, I know, is looking forward to the off the ground episode as well. Probably part two, but dude, let me just say thank you for making this excellent Bill Murray style cameo on this episode. It's been a lot of fun. I'm sure we'll be seeing you around in the future. Thanks, Sam. I'm always, always happy to come on. No, uh, dude, you are one of my favorite co-chairs ever. I could never pick one, but I know you're in you're in, you're in the top three. You're Given really how there. horrendous we both are at Facebook Messenger communication, it's just a pleasure that we ever make this happen. Oh no, folks, folks, like they'll be, they'll be like, "Hey, Dylan, do you want to record it in a, in a few days?" And then like two years later, yeah, yeah we'll do something. And, and and then like seven years after that, I'll go. Oh, dude, I missed your message. Sorry. I was at work. <laughs> Every time I start to feel bad about not replying to you sooner, you then take an additional week to respond. Yeah. I'm like, cool. Just two millennials really crushing it over here. Totally. Everyone, this has been the Len to my McCartney. This has been Dylan CV. We're, we're going to go off air now and bitch about some Paul McCartney podcasters. Take care, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> So now that we've got those pesky bonus tracks out of the way and we've got Dylan off this show, it's time we moved on to the various music videos for and around McCartney 3. Of course, Ed Chen has been my co-chair for the history of McCartney's videography. But if you go back, you will see that there was another man who assisted me with the music videos for Egypt Station. And so I thought it was only fitting that I should bring him back. Fresh from his appearance on Mac It In Your Attic and his co-chair spot on the Live and Let Die episode, a real personal favourite of mine. Everyone, please welcome back to the show the very first Patreon patron we ever had. It's Mr. Matt Phillips. Matt, how's it going, my friend? Good, thank you, Sam. Good to see you speak to you again. 
As as always, my friend, as always. And you were only ever going to be the, the person who was going to do this particular trend with me. Uh, and I know we've both got a lot to say about these videos. But first and foremost, I think it's safe to say that all of the content surrounding both McCartney 3 and McCartney 3 Reimagined slash 3 Imagined, it's been erratic. It's not been a, a proper release schedule, has it? No, it, yeah, it has been um, a little bit all over the place with a few kind of uh, sort of su surprises thrown in along the way, really. Yeah. W without any real, uh, without any warning. <laughs> a couple of them have been linked to certain release dates and stuff, but as we're going to get into, like a couple of them just seem to have been dropped for the sake of it or to keep the conversation moving forward. Of course, you know, COVID has been all over this album and uh, I'm sure all the various final versions and different variations would have happened either way. But uh, yeah, a very odd bunch of videos we've got today not a really a common theme across any of them um no. without going into spoiler specifics though on the whole do you prefer these music videos or the egypt station lot oh um now that's a tough one i would say the egypt station ones may be a bit more consistently interesting mm -hmm. although um Probably uh, these videos that we're going to talk about today are probably a bit more. They've, they've probably got the better videos in. Yeah, um, like, as the, in than the um, Egypt Station ones. Egypt Station, though, it did have a um, more of a, a centralized theme. I don't know what that theme was. I don't know if I could ever uh, vocalize it, but it, they did seem to be a little more connected. I guess. Um, yeah. Whether, were there any songs from the, uh, this album, these albums, that you wish had gotten a music video but didn't? I mean, I'm feeling, you know, a 10-minute deep, deep down music video would have been brilliant, but who would have made it and who would have watched it? Yeah, so, yeah, or, or you know, you know, Lavatory Lil might have been an interesting... Uh, <laughs> the lawyer said just, no to that. To, yeah, to that just one. someone's interesting take on that one. But, no, otherwise, yeah, it, it's just a... Um, usual thing with Macron, it's just a case to see, see what he throws up and uh, occasionally there's the odd interesting little nugget tidbit. yeah <laughs> no uh, it, his his music videos though seem to be as random as his choice of singles and we haven't even had proper singles for mm. McCartney 3 really what 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 was find my way called was was it called a select track or a highlight track or something like that because it's yeah. actually technically a single um, and then some of the videos we're going to talk about didn't even have a highlight either. They've just kind of been dropped on YouTube. But alas, that is the modern world. But keeping things chronological, we're going to start off with the first music video for McCartney 3, which was Find My Way. And of course, there was no official single release to coincide with this, but it still had the, the trimmings in having... <laughs> a Coppola make the music video for him. This was made by Roman Hurkin Coppola, the son of Francis Ford Coppola. Uh, but before we begin, what do you think of the Coppola family dynasty, as it as it, as it were? Um, I'm, I'm not too familiar beyond, beyond the, uh, 
the big guy. The Don, really. The Don, yeah. Yeah. No, you'll have to you you'll have you have to fill me in. No, um, I mean, I do like, well, we all love Nick Cage, the secret Coppola. Um but yeah, yeah. Uh is actually one of my favorite directors, even though she is inconsistent as fuck like some of her movies are tripe some of them are absolute masterpieces but yeah this is roman coppola a kind of frequent collaborator with uh the likes of wes anderson that that kind of thing if you like hipster cinema you probably know who roman coppola is uh, yeah, when, yeah. He was, when he was discussing the video with the new yorker he said it was shot remotely with coppola in napa and mccartney in his home studio in sussex I was thinking, what if we got a crazy amount of security cameras that we could control through one brain? We ended up with 53, I think, and then having him just do his thing. McCartney ran through the song once on the piano. It was like, Mr. McCartney, that was great. Then onto the harpsichord, the vocals, backing vocals, acoustic guitar, electric guitar, drums, and we hardly needed to adjust the cameras. He went on, it took a couple of breaks, and he had a cup of tea, and we were done. So, Matt... What do you think of what I'm going to dub the stripped-back simplicity of this music video? Well, I was, I was surprised to hear, I suppose, that it had a director in a sense. <laughs> because you kind of... Not, not, that it, not that it wasn't good, but... Um, but it, This is more of an editor's it, it music, a, music video, yeah, isn't it? it you know? The, the, the stripped-down feel was kind of in keeping with the kind of whole... McCartney three mm-hmm. vibe and rock down, you know the, the, the kind of yeah the kind of homemade the kind of homemade kind of element to it, which I've got my own opinions as to whether that is actually genuine or just a a market another McCartney NPL market employ. Um, Good point. But, um, I, I didn't even consider that actually. <laughs> well, no, um, but. Yeah, I mean, it, it would, it would, it would, I would have been equally unsurprised if you'd have told me that Paul had directed this video and and cut it all together mm-hmm. on his laptop using five cameras dotted around the studio. Um, that's not to say it wasn't good. Um, it, it had a good, uh, you know, I, it reminded me of uh, the Flaming Pie era. Yeah, yeah, of, definitely. Or you know, Paul. Uh, have you seen that there's a there's a video of him on um when he's on TGI Friday. Okay. Um uh promoting Flame and Pie and and it's a similar kind of thing really, whether or not he used to do that on his tour around then, but it's it's Paul uh it's about you got Paul live Paul and then about four other pre-recorded Pauls playing the different instruments. Um so it's pretty cool in that sense, but yeah, you know, um, you know, it's a perfectly inoffensive, fine, <laughs> fine inoffensive video, and and you know, sort of showcases uh, showcases the song well, I suppose, really. Yeah, this is definitely make doing more with less. This, you know, COVID stinks of this. Obviously, they couldn't have people on a set. They couldn't have twenty crew running running around spreading the virus or anything like that. But this does feel like a university student on iMovie or Final Cut, just taking all these static yeah. shots. There's no panning or anything. There's, there's there's no movement, and it comes off to me as deceptively cheap and amateurish. Like I know that they were restricted, but 
that they could have done something else here. Like, you know, um, yeah. the, the, the coming up music video, which this kind of reminded me of, you know, multiple pulls, that's all static camera movement, but they still did stuff with it. And you, you've kind of either got a, yeah. you've kind of got, if you're going to go down that route of, uh, you know, saying, oh, you know, this is a kind of a video made in lockdown or whatever, then you kind of got to embrace it fully and kind mm. of maybe take it to the extreme a bit more with, you know, you, you zoom backgrounds and that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. If Paul had done it, like, it's about him trying to make the music video on a bunch of Zoom calls. And, like, you know, the, yeah. the video starts with him. With all, like, the little, all the little squares. Hello? With a, with a, Hello? a little Paul in each square. <laughs> oh, and, like, it it just breaks down into arguing between the different Pauls as to what, what to do with the, with the, the video and stuff. Um, it's it's also a very clearly a digital music video. Um, it's, it looks like it's a bunch of GoPros, not even like a, a decent DS, DSLR camera or anything. Certainly not the film stock using the Who Cares music video. But the limitations here were very distracting for me. I, I couldn't look past it. I couldn't take it at face value. And like uh, Coppola himself describes the video as evoking the layered nature of McCartney's work with his instruments. And to me, it just felt like a bunch of static shots edited together and hoping for the best. I know that they never would have waited until COVID blew over, but I think that would have been the better choice for posterity for the future. Yeah, it's difficult. I can, I can understand. Um, I can understand why um, I, I get why you wanted to kind of show that you know each individual instrument i suppose and and that aspect of it and that okay it was paul doing it all um i guess my issue with the album as a whole really is that it's the the, the technology now is that you you can't really for mccartney 1 and mccartney 2 yeah you could you sort of got a homemade vibe mm -hmm. from it but there's there's nothing really very lo-fi, I don't think, about McCartney three. Um, <laughs> Especially for the amount of times the word or phrase lo-fi was used in every single bloody interview leading up to this album. Yeah, for me, for me, it was McCartney three and sort of name only, really. Um, Ooh, I like yeah. that. It's scathing, <laughs> but I like I've it. Got, I've got my own. I've got my own views about it, really. That uh, yeah. Like, you know whether or not it was really you know in, intended i don't know do you think it was paul's idea it ultimately to to say yeah i'm going to do mccartney you know, and do it like this or do you reckon it was just a it was it was definitely someone else going oh by the way 2020 you know a year with a zero oh that that'll work and then you know he goes oh yeah it's quite it's quite, it's quite a good idea actually <laughs> you know um it could you know it it has the pangs of you know Oh, Blackbird was about this thing, but then oh, it was later on. Oh, it was actually about that thing, but yeah, he'll never, yeah. he'll never credit someone as actually coming up with that idea. Um, I, I, I guess this whole music video is a bit like Paul's production on Seaside Woman, taking something quite bad and making it okay. Mm. I suppose if that was if that was your brief, and it was okay, we need we we want a video to show the um, to show the the. the the site, you know, to emphasize the fact that Paul's done all this himself. Mm -hmm. 
then I suppose that's the way you'd go about it, really, isn't it? To have these individual. Yeah, um, I guess so. To show the individual tracks and whatnot. I'm not sure how else you, but maybe it could have been a bit more. I mean, maybe. even like change your shirt for each instrument, you know, <laughs> you, know, you, know you know what I mean? Um, yeah. I don't know. Like, I guess maybe if I hadn't seen so much footage of Hogs Hill Mill, I would have been a bit more excited to, you know, get a look inside there but it's like no no there's the piano there's the there's the red carpet you know it's all very it's all very familiar to me um not giving it my thumbs up really i'll probably give it a a single thumbs down if any if anything to to give it the old roger ebert review but um let's let's move on yeah i don't care i was just going to say it's not some it's not a video that i'd kind of rush to to play again really Nah, it's it's not like when when we was fab some something that's actually fun to watch you know mm. um but we'll go on to something a little more lavish a little more expensive and i'm tempted to believe that this is actually entirely self-funded by mccartney himself knowing what i know now about things like one hand clapping but yeah we're going to discuss the animated music video for when winter comes now, Matt, we do have to have a quick chat here about Jeff Dunbar. Are you well versed in the Dunbar McCartney collaborations? Uh, yeah, I, I've kind of, I wouldn't say well versed, but I've been down that that wiki uh, <laughs> rabbit, rabbit hole, hole I suppose. Yeah. yeah, you know, like 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 we all have, and uh, you know, the first thing you do is, is he still alive? Yeah. <laughs> uh. yeah so, uh, but yeah, um, well, yeah, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a big. Um, I'm a big Rupert fan. In 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 in, in as, as far as McCartney goes, I'm a yeah big oh, big advocate oh, of that. Oh. Yeah, uh, I, think I think there's a little. I think we'll we'll come on to it, but I, I'm I'm sure there's a little uh, a little callback, a little reference in this video. Oh my gosh, is that? I oh my, I'm so glad I brought you on. I didn't think of that. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if there's a reference to Seaside Woman oh. or Tropic Island <laughs> Home in this as well. You know. Well, you know, yeah, we'll, we'll come to that. Yeah. Although, oh, folks, I'm actually quite embarrassed. I actually have no idea what Tropic Island Hum is. I just know that Linda was involved and Jeff Dunbar was involved. I actually have no clue what it actually is. But um, here's a quick quote from McCartney just saying how the project came together. At an office party last year, I was chatting with my friend Jeff Dunbar, who had made an animated shorts with previously. I asked if we want to make another film about, about using the song When Winter Comes. He agreed to do it and assembled a team of animators who all happened to be women and wives. I pointed it out to him, and he said he wanted an all-girl band. The look of the video was very loosely based on some Humphrey Ocean's drawings of birds. Folks, go on Google right now, check out Humphrey Ocean's drawing of birds, and you'll see instantly where the style for this video comes from. But first of all, how trippy is the NPL logo at the beginning of this music video? Like, it's Jeff Dunbar putting his nuts on the table saying, I can draw in pencil better than what you can do on the computer. It's amazing. Yeah, it's very cool. And it's very, um, it, it just takes you right back to uh, 1980s. Yes. McCartney, doesn't it? Everything about it, you immediately see, well, I immediately think of, you know, Paul wearing the, the Rupert jumper or whatever. <laughs> It, it it definitely had that feel to me of like something like the snowman or when the wind blows, which are two incredible works of art in their own right. And we have a lot of American listeners here. They're kind of seminal British animated works there. But right from the get go, 
you are being told nostalgia, warm feelings. And as, as cynical as it does it, you do feel they'll be like, ah, oh, this is this is some classic Paul. And since this is the, the classic Paul vocal, it did feel very, very appropriate. But yeah, uh, onto the video itself. I guess you'd have to be pretty stone-hearted not to be a, at least a little bit moved by this one, right? Yeah, it was, you know, uh, it was everything. It was nice and very uh, sentimental and everything about it kind of fitted mm -hmm. the song and uh, just kind of, yeah, floated along, really. <laughs> For anyone who hasn't seen it, it's basically just a day in the life of post-breakup Beatle McCartney. They are on the farm, presumably in Scotland. It's not the figures themselves aren't specifically Paul, but, you know, we get like an Appaloosa horse with a woman riding it. I wonder who that could be, you know? Um, and then we, we just get all these shots of nature and birds and all that kind of stuff. And it well, does... The weird uh, sort of... Sorry, we're kind of... Um, a brown-haired McCartney, or, you know, <laughs> assuming that's meant to be Paul, but, yeah, it's kind of like, yeah, I thought his hair was darker than that, but... Maybe there's some anime animation reason. <laughs> no, why it was darker. It's like in The Simpsons when if you want a horse on if you want a cow on screen, you have you have to paint a horse with uh, yeah. spots spots or something. I'm sure, there's a good reason. Yeah, there's um, there's there's just a lot of classic Ram memories for me with this. Like it felt very much like the heart of the country music video, just Linda and Paul frolicking about. Um, yeah. I would say, though, and I'm going to sound terribly harsh here, after you've watched it the first time, it is just kind of straight up boring. Like, there's not a lot of rewatch value to this at all. You, you appreciate the art the first time, and you have all this sweeping natural landscape to awe at. But I don't find myself reveling in it on repeat viewings. And it also has one of my biggest pet peeves of any music video, which is the visuals on screen are the lyrics. So the lamb and the chicken won't feel safe. And then it cuts to a, a lamb and a chicken going, oh, you know, uh, <laughs> and then you got a yeah. fox and then you got the acre patch. And it's like, you didn't have to do it this on the nose, Jeff. I know you could have done something a little more surreal or fantastical. Um, it's also an odd representation of Paul. Like, I don't know why NPL Capital uh, would even allow this, because, like, for the last five years, it's all been modern McCartney. He's young, he's hip, he's on Zoom and TikTok. And this was such a throwback that it almost felt like it was pandering to the grey pound that had helped McCartney 3 get to the number one spot. Like, uh, Yeah, sure. Thank you, everyone, for uh, spending so much money. Here's, here's, here's something a little more uh, classic for you there. It, this was definitely the one appealing to the grey market, especially as we move further along in these music videos, which get less and less appealing to original McCartney fans. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'm being an overly cynical millennial here, but I, I couldn't not retch in my mouth at the sight of all this super wholesome earnest sentimental imagery um it was very very wholesome yeah and it kind of got more and more wholesome as it as it went on really um it was you know like a three minute animals of farthing wood ramped up 100 <laughs> percent kind of video mm. 
I don't know if you remember the animals of Farthingwood, Sam. Oh my gosh. Might be a bit animal... too young. No, <laughs> I, I was definitely on the tail end of the animals of Farthingwood. I definitely remember the adder at, like lost its tail at one point and they've got to get over the motorway and one of the hedgehogs gets run over. Yeah. Traumatizing yeah. stuff for a for a, a child yeah. a child to watch. Uh, it's yeah, definitely no animal dies not... in this video, so that's 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 something. Yeah, this is this is definitely more Peppa Pig than mm. uh, the animals of Farthing Wood. Like, I'm but not there saying is, um, like, you know. the, the, there is the, 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 the moment that um, that I didn't know that immediately uh, stood out to me um, as being a possible little callback was about it's about two and a half minutes in we we see the frog um, and I, you know I maybe I'm just you know in my fanatical McCartney mind I'm, I'm just imagining this but I could swear it's exactly the same uh, I swear it's a sample of one of the frogs from um uh Rupert and the Frog Song um oh bowl bowl I mean there can't be you know it, 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 the, 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 it, there's a rivet and uh it's a very distinctive rivet you know I'm, I'm sure uh I'm sure there's a sound library of uh of frog noises that that, that, that all come from the same uh Oh yeah, source maybe. But. I'm I'm pretty sure that the classic Hollywood frog that we know was a type of California frog that went extinct in the 40s, and it doesn't even exist anymore. So it's literally a fake wow. ribbit. Yeah, That's, I wasn't um, expecting that level of knowledge, Sam. Oh no, no, like <laughs> I, I I will try and get my film degree into Doing this podcast wherever possible. Um, but that wasn't the only possible reference. Like uh, one of the top comments on the YouTube video is, um, you know, that man sitting by the lake around two minutes in, is that John Lennon? And I'm like, okay. oh God, like, I'm guessing you didn't think that either. <laughs> no, not really. I didn't, yeah, I kind of, uh, <laughs> I didn't know what to think really. I kind of acknowledged it and then moved on. <laughs> um, I think I didn't give it too much thought really. I mean, going back to Ram, this is just the same parody as the lyrics for that album. Like, oh, if there's an ambiguous line, it has to be about John. If there's an ambiguous mm. man in the music video, it must be Lennon's spirit coming down to visit Paul. And it's like, nah, it's probably, it's probably just a guy on the farm. Yeah, yeah. Or could it be Jeff Dunbar himself? Is he is he known one of these people who likes to sort of uh, insert himself in the uh, Alfred Hitchcock <laughs> style in the, in the uh, video? I'm sure there's a frog in the in 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 the Rupert the Bear short where if we go back and look at it now, there's just a frog that looks suspiciously like Jeff Dunbar. Yeah, uh, or John Lennon, maybe. Yeah. Or John Lennon <laughs> with, with, with with the glasses want, on and everything. Uh, I want somebody to study to study the audio of the uh of the ribbit in this video and compare folks, it to uh, please write course. in, please write in and put Matt out of his yeah, own misery. Forensic, forensic <laughs> examination, I think. Oh, that's so funny. Um, we also get a bonus track at the end of this music video, the instrumental Winter Sun. And I mentioned this with Dylan earlier, but it's mad that we have an actual bonus song that wasn't included on any of the bonus song uh, CD versions of this album. Mm. Yeah. Um, we also get the additional like diegetic countryside background sound. So I'm even thinking, oh God, are there now two mixes of Winter Sun now? Are there two more versions of this album we could have yeah. put out, like a, a turquoise one and then maybe a magenta one? You know, we could, let's, let's keep this money train moving. <laughs> um, 
but yeah, that, that's that's a nice little bonus to have at the end of this, and it totally does dispel that myth that you know, oh, there was a there was only ever ten songs done for McCartney three, even though I mentioned there was like twenty earlier in the year. But shh, we're not going to talk about that. Um, have you also seen the behind the scenes little doc that came out for this as well? I yeah, I didn't. I when it first came out, I I saw it um, quite a while back then. <laughs> I've noticed though that. Um, a lot of the behind-the-scenes music video stuff for McCartney 3 has actually been more interesting for me than the music videos themselves. Yeah, but, sure. But I'm the kind of guy that has watched the making of Lord of the Rings probably more than the movie itself. Like, I will gladly sit there and watch Peter Jackson talk, talk about how he wanted the orcs to look for hours. You know, that is that is totally my... Well, especially my with something idea. like this video, when you, when this, you can, there's obviously a lot of... Uh, work gone into it and um you do meet the all-star girl band and then i type their names into google and they pretty much always been working with jeff they go back to tropic island hum and the root of the bear thing as well so it's a proper yeah. insular mccartney team there even if mccartney doesn't know the other and an animators personally but yeah um i guess you know, like you said about Find My Way, it does meet its own objective. It did set out what it wanted to do, but that doesn't yeah. mean I necessarily found it that entertaining or compelling, I guess. No, Mo agree there. Moving on, everyone, it's time to tackle a, the, the, the single subject that actually prevented this episode from coming out earlier in the year, which is the music video for Sliding. And we are going to be straying slightly from the chronology here, but yeah. Matt, do you remember that this song, this music video had a trailer earlier this year, like nine months ago or something? Yes. Well, <laughs> weirdly enough, that trailer did not just show surfing. Um, again, for anyone who hasn't seen the slider music video, it's just more classic McCartney surfing stuff. And we'll talk about why that's classic in a moment. But in the original trailer, it was more, it was all sports to do with sliding. So you had like snowboarding, skateboarding. I think there's even like BMXing and um, snowmobile mm -hmm. stuff. I suppose you could even have curling in there because that slides across the floor as well. Then we finally come to this video. It comes out well after the album. It comes out closer to the release of Three Imagined than it does to the release of McCartney 3. Uh, yeah. well, after, well after the hype has gone down, well after it's left the chart, so it's not even like it's keeping the album in the conversation or anything. But, yeah, hang on. Let, uh, I think I've got the maths here. Yeah, the trailer was released February 11th, 2021, and the video came out on the 20th of June, 2021, which is 129 days. And to compare that, the trailer for McCartney 3 only came out 59 days before the actual album itself. So I have yeah. no idea what production issues affected this album because they clearly had all the footage and it's all just stock footage. It's not like they, you know, yeah. needed... I don't know what this is. I don't know why he just had to go and resort to the uh, kind of blue sway with the Richard Niles Orchestra music video format that we had back in 2011. Like, this is literally a 10-year, decade-long throwback. And I know Paul clearly thinks surfing's cool, but this one just holds nothing for me. This is just footage of a guy surfing. 
Yeah, I mean, there's nothing more to it than that, really, is there? It's, uh, like you say, stock footage, it appears to be. Um, yeah, bizarre. It's the same surfer as the original uh, Blue Sway video, uh, a man named Jack McCoy. He'd uh, directed this. Um, and the surfer himself is someone called Craig Anderson. It's meant to celebrate International Surfing Day, apparently. Like, another one of these made-up days that just means absolutely nothing with the milieu of how, yeah. however many international days there are. Uh, you know, you know, International Wear a Silly Hat Day or, you know whatever's going going around um i i was quite disappointed by this one not just because the trailer was different to the final product which is always a bugbear of mine something that peter jackson does actually quite a lot with his movies he'll put extended or deleted scenes in the trailer which gets me hyped for the, all, all the wrong reasons but this surfing video really doesn't live up to the badass riff that is sliding like bow, now, 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 now. it's just some guy going Ooh. Yeah, I it's mean, like, you know, the, the 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 correct video, you know, if they wanted to tie it in with uh, International Surfing Day or whatever it was, would be to have, you know, I mean, Paul goes to the Bahamas enough, doesn't he? <laughs> get him, get him in the sea, gallivanting <laughs> around, playing on a surfboard, trying, you know, falling off. Falling in the sea, all that kind of thing. Put a green screen behind him, have him yeah. balance on a piece of wood and go, whoa, like it's um, Batman and the Joker in the 1960s, you know? You know, get get Mike, Mike Love in there or somebody like that, if you can stomach him and, uh, and, 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 and ham it up. Because what the, the, fine, you know, the, the final result is something that's just like beyond bland really <laughs> yeah like it doesn't feel like a real paul mccartney sanctioned music video it feels like a fan made video like oh guys like i really love the song sliding and i've just cut this this yeah you know youtube music video together it's, it's and, an ex it's an excuse to get it onto youtube i think that is what it feels you know but that's even weirder considering that we've had the visualizer and lyrics music videos mm. as well yeah um, I'm not going to make you sit here and go and go through them today, Matt, because they are pretty self-explanatory. But with any other artist, I'd be like, oh, yeah, I, I, I think you're totally correct. This is just an excuse to have a music video for the sake of it. But obviously, McCartney, Capital MPL have kind of caught wise to the YouTube game. They know that the album's going to be put onto YouTube immediately. So pretty much a week after the album comes out, the album is also on YouTube and it also gets that ad revenue in for NPL as well. So everyone's happy. But this video just felt like a massively wasted opportunity. And oh, I hope I hope the original video with the original variety of footage, which would have given it a certain life and freshness, is going to be included on the McCartney 3 archive set in 2047, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think... It was very bizarre. <laughs> That's all I can say about it. Folks, if you haven't seen the uh, Blue Sway video with the Richard Niles Orchestra, uh, go and check that out. If that didn't exist, maybe I would have liked the sliding one a little bit more. But the fact is, the other one's much better. You also get lots of footage of the waves from underwater, which is already quite a surreal, fun image to work with. But, you know, if you've seen Hawaii Five-0, you've seen this music video. Right, 
Taking a step back to the 11th of March, our next slash last music video was to promote the digital release of Three Imagined on streaming platforms, and that was Dominic Fike's The Kiss of Venus. Right, I think we can start talking about a quality product again here, Matt, though this was not without its controversy. And looking back, do you think that this was the best introduction to Three Imagined, or was this chosen specifically to scare the grey-haired fans into sparking debate? Um, yeah, it's a good question. I, I don't know, really. I think I think, you know, it's a good it kind of encapsulates what he wanted Three Imagine to be, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the, the videos are a good reflection of that. I think, you know, I, I think you're right, you know, it's, it's, it's modern and it's interesting. And out of all of them, it's the one that I'd, that kind of mm -hmm. deserves a second viewing, I think. You know, there's, there's enough going on in there and enough kind of interesting, um, visually interesting things that that you kind of think yeah I wouldn't mind wouldn't mind going back and and having another look and th there's <clears throat> something that you notice I think each yeah. time I'll just say right off the bat I do enjoy this music video but my cynical marketing brain just thinks right this is a young lad he's got tattoos on his face like Jared Leto's Joker he's not white which is very important in this conversation but not only that the production is very modern and it's a starkly different mix than the original album track and therefore, I've no doubt that in addition to the quality of the song, which is there, I love this track. It's one of my favorites from Three Imagine. But this video for me was chosen to spearhead it as it would spark as much conversation as possible and provoke those classic Beatles fans into spreading awareness, possibly even through negativity. And, you know, the entire advertising campaign for this video, including the YouTube thumbnail, is the is the what's your take on it line. And it, it actively encourages yeah. the audience to, to talk about it. And, you know, it's it's definitely there to, to do that rather than say to old codger fans. I know you're all listening, folks. I know my demographics are mostly 45 and up. Um, but. You know, if they wanted a, a safer bet, they would have gone with Find My Way or Damon Albarn's When Winter Comes, something like that. That would have ruffled far fewer feathers. But yeah, onto the, onto the video itself. Uh, I hadn't actually gone back to it till today. And oh my God, it's so well put together. It's shot beautifully. The cinematography is crisp and finely executed. And the editing is just so brisk that gives what could be a slower song a little more oomph. Um, I really enjoyed the shot of him sitting in those abandoned streets, which seems like a lifetime away now. Do you remember when the streets were empty, Matt, just a year <laughs> ago? Um, but obviously the main standout sequence is all the stuff from inside a real-life newspaper printing press. Yeah. And I, I really thought it was a fun little reference to like the state of modern media and even like fake news and all of that jazz. Though I kind of wish they would have gone and made this the entire video rather than just this kind of centerpiece of it. Like clearly they were referencing Fike's new lyrics in the songs and the other visuals didn't match that, I guess. But yeah, it's very much, um, it, yeah, it's, it's kind of one of those videos. It's kind of difficult to, it's very difficult to kind of describe. Yeah. There's no plot. Someone. <laughs> yeah. A plot or it's, it's, it's very much a kind of a, a, 
a montage or I don't know what you call it really, uh, you know, the video collage type. Singing um, to camera, yeah. Yeah, but yeah, at the same, but it does kind of feel like, uh, it does kind of feel like it all kind of, um, it, it, it's kind of cohesive, you know, um, it all kind of fits, fits. Well, I'd argue well, you know, together, I think, yeah. There's a few random images towards the end that kind of threw it off for me a bit. Like you've got, he's in his hotel room and he got that lovely shot of the teaspoon going around the cup by itself which was a lovely quintessentially british image but then you get this cosmic light show display in blue neon in his hotel room which had nothing to do with anything and then you have the shot from inside the acoustic guitar being plucked i'm like i saw that on youtube like 20 years ago like <laughs> what is what is this being included on on here um but it, it is kind of, yeah, I, I, I get what you mean. It is sort of every trick in the book, isn't it? That's Gimmicky. Been, <laughs> that's been thrown at it, yeah. Like, I'm shocked that there wasn't a scene where, like, a barn didn't fall onto Dominic Fike, but he was stood where the window was, you know. Oh. <laughs> or, like, you know, he's hanging off a clock or something like that. Um, though... In direct contrast to the Find My Way music video, I give this one so much more credence for the fact they got it done during the COVID-19 pandemic. Like, obviously, getting those empty streets wasn't that hard to do. I mean, I'm sure Danny Boyle would have loved to have shot 28 Days Later on empty streets like this, rather than having a couple of Volkswagens moving in the background and kind of ruining the immersion. Um, but... Yeah, we, we, we still had a wide variety of locales and visuals and there's lots of camera movement. We even got a shot of him a couple of times with a COVID mask on that matched his suit, which I thought was very cool. And like, why can't everyone have a, a, a mask that literally matches their best suit? That, that'd be awesome. Um, also, uh, I don't know if, if you were reminded of this. I know you're a Bond guy. The whole uh, newspaper stuff, it just reminded me of the end sequence from Tomorrow Never Dies. <laughs> when he, when yeah, he finally... Yeah. Oh, and oh, what, do, what, what does he say when he kills the bad guy? Oh, uh, Brosley goes, they'll print anything these days. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Good impression. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's very hard to do Pierce Brosnan because he's, he's Irish, but he's not too Irish, you know? Uh, <laughs> Ah, uh, but um, no, it was cool. Yeah, obviously we've got to talk about the little cameo at the end of this one as well. It's a, a blink and you'll miss it moment if you blink really slowly, I guess. Um, it's Paul sitting on a, a park bench reading a paper, probably the same newspaper uh, uh, from the uh, factory that Dominic Fike was just in. But how do you make the specific use of him here is this him wanting to hide his old man image is this him not wanting to steal the limelight from a newer artist or is paul trying to do the opposite is he trying to get a bit of kudos at the end of this video where he should have probably just stepped away yeah um, i mean i certainly you know if he didn't want to steal the the limelight you know he went the wrong way about it really to to, to kind of pop up at the end of the video like Hello, it's me. Ta-da! Jazz hands. Yeah, it's my song. Um, yeah, I mean, it could have definitely been done in a more, you know, it could have referenced Paul in a more subtle way. Um, you could have had McCartney on the newspapers being printed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, something, yeah, exactly. Something like, something like that. Yeah, to sort of, um, yeah, pop up at the end with a kind of, with a kind of wink as, as though we're all meant to think, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was me thinking it was a, <laughs> 
you know. Um, if no, it felt uh, like a modern movie reference. Like you know, when in like Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, he goes to reach for his pistol, but it's not there, and it's a re- yeah. and it's a callback to the first film. That's a cute callback. But now in modern movies, you'll get like Jurassic World, and the T Rex bursts through a Spinosaurus skeleton. Oh, you didn't like that dinosaur, folks, did you? You know, it's very on the nose, and this was that, and. Yeah. The fact that there were specific articles and posts and videos doing the rounds on social media, specifically pointing people to the video merely because Paul McCartney was at the end. Can you spot him at the end? Is a testament to the fact that uh, this cameo was done for all the wrong reasons, I guess. It it wasn't as cute as it thought it was. And it was done much better in the next video that we're going to talk about, the final one. Finally, Matt, we're going to talk about the most recent one from the 22nd of June, 2021. Even that feels like a lifetime away, but this is the Find My Way Beck remix. So, yeah, uh, this is probably the very last thing we're going to hear from Three Imagined, but it also wasn't without its share of controversy and intrigue, almost like it's calculated as such. Um, of course, the big selling point slash main area of attraction for this video was the use of the widely known deep fake technology. Matt, I'm sure you've seen a deep fake or two before this one, right? Oh, one or two, yeah. I've, I've been known. Yeah, you know. That obviously, was... you know, legitimate, of course. Yes. <laughs> no, no. Um, obviously, if you go on uh, several adult sites, you can probably find any deep fake of any celebrity you want. But I mostly like them for like, you know, when people just do something with George Bush or something like that. And, you know, they'll just do something hilarious like that. There's, there's even an app on the iPhone now where you can change your face into someone else's. I know that that's probably doing nothing but damage to the schizophrenic community, but whatever. Um, if anyone doesn't know, deep fake technology is basically the computer will map a face in real time and will map the facial expressions of that face and then can transplant another another person's face onto it, which basically means with the magic of CGI, you can turn your face into Paul McCartney's face. And this is the only time I'm going to talk about how good a specific effect is. How well do you think the effect was achieved in this video? Did it sell it to you? No. Um, okay, here we go. I, and to be honest with you, I'm not sure. Maybe I'm being too kind or giving too much credit. I'm not sure whether or not that was the intention to kind of make it so good that you were meant to be fooled. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was kind of in the uncanny valley territory of, yeah, it kind of is, kind of isn't, and weird. Yeah, um, a, a bit like Tom Hanks in I kind of felt actually, I, I, Yeah, you know, but I, I actually felt it kind of fitted... It, it, it fitted with the video and the kind of mm-hmm. quirkiness of it and, and all that kind of thing. Um, but the... I mean, yeah, it, you know, I can't... It, yes, it looks like Paul, but it, it's clearly not on Yeah, Paul, like when the, the face on turns... Paul's mannerisms... <laughs> and body movements and all that kind of thing. So it kind of throws you off a little bit. Um, but I would was, say the, the guy yeah, who plays Paul, the dancer, he does have a couple of McCartney quirks, like like twirling the hand on the, on the wrist and stuff mm. like that. There were certain airs and graces he added there. But yeah, it's clearly not Paul. <laughs> but 
as as far as I was concerned, the effect was pretty damn excellent. It wasn't perfect, you know, when the face turns and tilts and stuff. You can almost tell, like, the CGI face is almost catching up with the movements and there's, like, a slight delay, which is probably where the Uncanny Valley feeling comes from. It's almost like he's in a dream or something, which is definitely why they cho- chose to do what they did with the video. But there's a very liberal use of smoke and light to help sell the effect. And even by the end of the video, it's just star child cosmic pool we don't even see the face anymore um but i I guess my belief was suspended though a lot of people matt seems to be under the impression that it was beck himself who played young mccartney throughout the whole thing were you ever under the impression that it was beck the entire time um you know obviously at the very end i was kind of like um but you know no i mean I, I don't. I, I can't see it. How old is he now? Fifty something. He looks I, good I, though. He looked young. I was oh, like, yeah, damn, he looks good. Damn. Yeah, he looks good. But I'm. I'm not entirely. No, I. I. I, I kind of. Uh, I kind of figured that there was. Some, I've some got the. I've got. I've got the act, the actor's name somewhere, and he does look enough like Paul to help sell the effect. If you haven't seen Deep Fake Tech, folks you need to have a face that looks as close to the original face as possible to help sell the effect. So like if I was going to do a deep fake, it would be like Brad Pitt or George Clooney or something like that, you know, because obviously that's who I look like. Um, <laughs> maybe I could go for like 1970 Paul on, on, on top of the rooftop and maybe we could do, or, you know, Bob Seger or Barry Gibb. Maybe we could do something Barry like that. Barry Gibb, yeah. No, I see, I see Barry Gibb. anyway um of course as well there actually is paul in this video i think that's part of the irony of it that it's not paul but it is paul i'm guessing you spotted the second three imagined cameo right yeah that's 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 a more subtle cameo isn't it yes (laughs) than the last one Literally, to quote you earlier, it's more of a Hitchcockian one. It's just him walking through the background. It's it's not him going, hello, my baby, hello, my honey, hello, my ragtime gal. Um, but also as well, not only is it less tacky, it's, it's also a clear indication that COVID restrictions were being laxed and the world was returning more to normal. This is a proper music video. I guess the best comparison is that this is the who cares of of these ones. You know, it's the, it's the biggest production value. It's got the most special effects in it. It's got the most distinct visual flair. Um, you know, the uh, Kiss of Venus, Dominic Fike, that is still a very well put together music video, but it is just live action elements. I don't think there's any CG except for the transition to the what's your take on it frame when he jumps through it. Um, yeah which felt like Superman get coming coming through the Marlborough truck uh, at one point there. But, you know, Matt, a video is not just built on a special effect, uh, much to the shock of George Lucas. So um, deep fake tech aside, what did you think of this hallway dance video? Um, I thought, uh, yeah, I actually thought it was kind of well well executed generally and kind of set out what it what it wanted what it wanted to achieve yeah i thought it was i thought it was good overall i enjoyed yeah. it it was like i say quirky and interesting and got people talking about it which is you know mm. all you can ask really of a music video now isn't it 
No, I don't think any of these have failed to stir the public consciousness, uh, except for the sliding one, but that wasn't even a proper music video. But all of these videos, swiftly, on any uh, site that deals with uh, rock or classic rock, there was an article about each of these music videos, you know. I'm sure what culture and Q and Rolling Stone would have all had their own, what's your take on it? You know, they would have had their own takes on all of these. Um, though, Matt, like a lot of things that I like on this podcast, I'm kind of, I feel like I'm a bit short on words actually, because I just really enjoyed it. Um, mm. The main thrust, of course, is just Paul walking down this very mercurial, ever-changing John Carpenter's The Thing corridor. It just keeps, it keeps changing. You, you really can't keep up with it. And that's what made it so entertaining for me. It doesn't linger on a visual for too long, which keeps it very fresh. You get the conventional hotel-motel set with him dancing through it. Then we get a slightly more psychedelic hallway and the paint starts to move. Then we get... Uh, a little flash of this cosmic star child Paul coming from within his outline, which I really liked. Then we get to the best part, which I knew Paul approved of, which is when the hallway turns into this jungle, like this this wildlife erupts in there and he's like dancing through this foliage. Really enjoyed that stuff. Then we get this black and white arched hallway, which was very much like the Who Cares music video. Um, we even get the the hotel staff now dancing in the background as well, which also felt like the uh, video for Come On To Me, with all those people like just dancing in a random skyscraper and stuff like that. Uh, we also get some very fancy footwork from Paul here. This, this guy definitely dances a lot better than the real life Paul does from what I've seen. Uh, you know, I've mostly just seen Paul do that, the classic thing. Um, it's it's ironic though because obviously this this whole cover slash remix was based on um, Beck going out and dancing with Paul and Nancy Cheval together, which is very cute that he would incorporate dancing, I guess, in the in the same way. And then we get the very futuristic, very smooth labyrinthine corridor sequence, which felt like a, a technical Apple Store really, like with all those kind of flat white shapes and stuff. And then for the uh, piece de resistance, we get the 2001 A Space Odyssey sequence where, where uh, Paul goes through hyperspace, he goes to warp speed, and he just he's dancing in the stars and dancing uh, in the cosmos. All very fun. Um, I, I really just kind of got lost in it, really. I was so impressed when it, when it first came out. And to go back to our point earlier, like, did it, did it meet its objective? It's a fun dance video down a corridor with a deep fake Paul. Ten out of ten on on all of those, really. Yeah, uh, yeah it's it was, something it that really I fun. think you can enjoy. It. It's just it's there to be enjoyed on a surface, you know, on a surface level. You don't have to look for some deep meaning within it or or, or anything like that. It's just there. It's, it it is what it is. You is and it's yeah. It was really enjoyable. Yeah, and you know he goes on this crazy journey and then he comes out the normal door i guess he's found his way i guess that's the deepest you could, you could <laughs> go on this uh and then beck takes off uh, a fake paul mask and reveals that he's beck confusing a bunch of people who don't know how deep fake tech works but um there was a lot of furore here like everyone going oh no this is the end of music videos as we know it you know every video is going to have a deep fake paul mccartney in it now and whether other artists are going to do this is irrelevant. You know, there's definitely going to be 
uh, an, an Elvis deep fake that's going to be official very soon. We all know these things are coming, holograms, yada, yada, yada. But I know for a fact that the real McCartney's not going to do another deep fake music video. He never does the same thing twice, in whether it's audio yeah. or visual. Um, although, could you imagine a deep, all four Beatles in a deep fake? That's the next logical step. I think it'll happen. I think it'll happen one day without a doubt. Yeah, it's the way forward. <laughs> Everyone out there, if you need someone to play a deep fake 1970s Paul, Paul McCartney, just get me the suit and get someone in a red in a red coat to play Ringo. I'm there. Come on, let's do this. Although maybe if I trim the beard a little, I could also do George Harrison as well. Get get me some of them nice green trousers and a nice fluffy coat. I'll go for that as well. But uh, I'm not going to big myself too much here. Um, like I say, Matt, I'm not going to bore you with the lyric music videos and the visualised music videos. I will cover them myself. Do not worry. But yeah, we are done in record time, actually. This is probably the most efficient recording ever done for Paul or Nothing. There have been no digressions. We stayed on topic and we're done in less than an hour. So thank you very much, dude. This has been a pleasure. Yeah, no, cool. Thank you very much, Sam. Anytime. And uh, good to speak to you. And, uh, well, wait and see what uh, Paul comes up with next. Yeah, McCartney 4. Oh, my gosh. Yes, we all want that now, folks, don't don't we? Even more songs with deep in the title, you know? <laughs> there we are, everyone. This has been my chat with my main man, the original OG, Matt Phillips, who has once again kindly come on to help me discuss more McCartney ephemera. Hello again, everyone. I'm back. It's just me and you once again. Have you missed me? I know you have. And whilst we all secretly wish that I could be my own guest on my own show, let me just take a quick second to once again thank my two wonderful guests, Dylan Seavey and Matt Phillips, for coming on to assist me and make this the most fun of bureaucratically needless episodes. But folks, we are still not done and we still indeed have some more ancillary supplementary McCartney 3 material. Moving on from the full feature big budget music videos, we now move on to the lyric music videos for McCartney 3. These exist basically to invalidate anyone who wants to try and post the music onto YouTube right away and it gives and it gives McCartney and his team the ad revenue money as well as the marketing team another dozen or so opportunities to make a new post with the title New Paul McCartney Music Video. But yeah folks, I assume most of you would have seen at least one of these making their way across the interwebs over the last few months, but if not, if you need catching up, a lyric music video is a very basic, very cheap music video format that rather than conveying a story or performance of the artist, instead just has a few moving images, a few stills, a few kooky montages and a bit of artwork that displays the lyrics. You can sing along to it. In fact, let me read a quote from one of the creators, Lucy Dyson, from her Facebook page in 2020. It reads, Working with Paul's handwritten lyrics, each video is based in a domestic or studio setting. Using photos taken by Paul's daughter, Mary McCartney, while he was recording the album during lockdown, I created collage scenes for the viewer to get a sense of Paul's at-home creative process. To add a touch of intimacy, you see his coffee cup, his plectrums, pencils, synthesizers, guitar pedals, curtains, books, mushroom lamp, etc. 
I was allowed to use Linda McCartney's photos taken during the recording of McCartney 1 and 2 also. Some of these details work as added Easter eggs for the fans with keen eyes to discover. Part of the veritable content deluge from Capital and MPL at the time, the lyric videos for Pretty Boys, Women and Wives and Winterbird When Winter Comes were all released the day after the official music video for Find My Way. Then following that, we had all of the subsequent videos, you know, Lavatory Lil, Deep Down, Kiss of Venus, Long-Tailed Winterbird, Find My Way, and Seize the Day. I think that's all the songs. Of course, though, these were not the only extra bonus supplementary videos to accompany the release of McCartney 3. No, in addition to the McCartney 3 lyric videos, the proliferation of material from this album to circumvent YouTube pirates also came in the form of the Three Imagined slash McCartney 3 Reimagined Visualizer music videos. So, what exactly is a visualizer music video? Well, unlike the lyrics music videos which focused on the lyrics, these videos are focusing on the visuals and instead consist of a short stop-motion animation lasting anywhere between 5 and 10 seconds that loops over and over again whilst the song plays. Of course, Three, of course, Three Imagined is far more about the vibe, and I think the people behind this were more than well aware that you're probably going to be clicking on the song on YouTube before then moving on to another tab or website whilst you continue to listen. Maybe too much was spent on the lyrics videos, who knows? But yeah, examples include a bouncing ball in and out of frame, some spinning wheels with McCartney-based photo shooting pass, or a disembodied hand putting on a miniature copy of Three Imagined on a vinyl player. They're all incredibly simple, basic and low cost, and whilst they do have a certain Ardman charm to them, especially when compared to the overblown When Winter Comes animated video, the cynic in me cannot help but see this as anything other than an attempt by MPL Capital to ensure that any and all YouTube ad revenue goes to them and not one of us plebs. I know we don't deserve that money, but, you know, it's the, it's the YouTube black market economy. You know, be cool, guys. Give us something. Outside of bootlegs now, there really isn't much we can do with McCartney music. Uh, McCartney and his team at MPL and Capital really are doing very well with their YouTube page. Almost everything unique is now found on the official YouTube page, you know. If you want an extended version of songs from McCartney 2, you can't buy that, you can only go to the YouTube page. So always keep that in mind, folks. Also, at the time of recording, there was a visualizer video. At the time of recording, every song from Three Imagined has had a visualizer music video, and true to form, and rather adorably, when the Idris Elba bonus track, i.e. his remix of Longtail Winter Bird was released, a much belated Visualizer video was also released. On to our second topic now, we have something else that we did indeed cover during our original run-up to the release of McCartney 3 um, in one of the most popular, uh, most downloaded episodes we've ever had, actually. And this was the 12 Days of Paul promotional campaign. Yes, if you remember, Paul MPL Capital put a series of billboards up in various countries around the world, each of these billboards or painted murals contained within them a section of sheet music for each song from the album. It wasn't the whole song, but enough for anyone who can read music to be able to play a teaser portion of it. Although the great irony of all of this being that Paul himself 
cannot read music and is not classically trained, so he would probably not be able to take part in this if he wasn't already Paul McCartney. Anyway, one of these displays was unveiled each day leading up till Christmas, and the final list reads as thus. Long-tailed Winterbird was in London, Find My Way was in Los Angeles, Pretty Boys was in Mexico City, Women and Wise was in Sydney, Lavatory Lil was in Toronto, Deep Deep Feeling was Berlin, Sliding was in New York, The Kiss of Venus was in Tokyo, Seize the Day, Chicago, Deep Down was Paris, Winterbird When Winter Comes was in Rio de Janeiro, back in Brazil, you might say. And finally, to cap things off on Christmas Day itself, Wonderful Christmas Time was unveiled in Liverpool. Now, the other part of the campaign was that fans and musicians who had seen the sheet music for these songs would perform cover versions and submit them on social media with the relevant hashtags and all that jazz. And during the run-up, McCartney's promotional team began to select their favourite covers and attach one of each of these covers to the appropriate city, you know, with their respective songs, to kind of act as an ambassador cover for that song, the official MPL Capital approved teaser. Honestly, this was the most exciting part of the campaign for me, and being as active on social media as I was back then in the lead up to McCartney 3, I was welcome to a deluge of covers of Paul's work that I would never have normally had access to. I mean, the amount of experimentation and creativity on display was a real marvel to behold, and I was very jealous that I couldn't convince any of my friends or virtuoso musicians to create one too but alas. Also, the fact that the majority of covers that I saw at least were indeed outside of the UK and US really hit home the global scale of this album, this campaign, and more importantly, the McCartney fan base. Anyway, I played a lot of these clips before, so I'm just going to run down the list of who's who and post the links in the description so you can go and check them out for yourselves. Representing Long-Tailed Winterbird, we have the band Blossoms, aka At Blossom Band aka at Blossoms Band on Twitter. Sadly, this clip has now been taken down and isn't viewable on Macca's site, so you can probably only hear it on our previous podcast. Then we have a total of five covers from one Mr. Federico Boluzzi, or Boluzzi, aka at Febo86 on Twitter, who does covers of Find My Way, Women and Wives, Pretty Boys, Lavatory Lil, and Sliding. I mean, well done to Federico, of course, but I would have thought that the marketing department behind this campaign would have had the foresight to have given more people the chance to be involved. Like, is this Paul's people being lazy or overly favourable to one artist? Either way, it's a little selfish, really, because it's not like there weren't other loads of of covers that could have been suitable. Um, Who knows? Then, acting on the behalf of Kiss of Venus, we have two entries from Japan. First is a really, really good one by At Penthouse Band, who give a really rock and roll heavy electric guitar version of The Kiss of Venus. And it really would have been interesting if Paul had done the song this way also. I mean, this is borderline three-imagined kind of stuff going on here. But another one that appears on McCartney's site is at Beatles underscore movies, and this one is legitimately bad. I I wish they had have given it to Federico Boluzzi again there. 
And the reason I feel that this was chosen is because it physically shows the singer standing in front of the Tokyo display and not because of its quality. Like, this person has to do double takes, gets the lyrics wrong and leaves no gaps between the lines. It's a bit of a mess. Pressing on to Seize the Day, this is represented by one Paul Nose, aka at Paul Nose on Twitter. We definitely played this song on an early episode. Go go back and check that out if you haven't already, because it is genuinely very good. Then, for some reason, we get another version of Long-Tailed Winterbird by a user called Adrian Guitarist in Bounce, aka at Bounce52988290 on Twitter, as well as a second helping of Find My Way by one Fabio Katz, aka Augmented Ninth on Twitter. Now, I would normally be fine by this, you know, the more the merrier, but for some other stupid reason, deep, deep feeling deep down, when winter comes, winter bird, and and winter bird when winter comes, do not have a song on McCartney's website. I know that this campaign is nearly 12 months old now, and it's hardly going to be updated, but this leaves Berlin, Paris, and Rio without musical representation. This is particularly bullshit again, as there were loads of covers for these songs the world over, and it just makes me wonder whether the campaign didn't attract the attention that the execs wanted, and effort quickly ran out for it. So yeah, folks, the 12 Days of Paul, do any of you still remember it? I hope so, because it was fun for what it was worth. I mean, who doesn't enjoy watching musicians create music and interpreting music that you haven't, or at least shouldn't have, heard before? Though this idea of other artists covering McCartney seemed to have stuck with either himself or the suits, because of course, that would lead into Three Imagined. Anyway, now I'm going to move on to the part of the episode that most impacted me on my day-to-day life outside of this podcast, which is McCartney's AMA on Reddit.com. For those of you out of the loop, Reddit.com is a website that has hundreds of sub-websites of all manner of topics where users can upvote or downvote the best content to the top of each individual page. It's known as the front page of the internet. Then, AMA is one of these particular sub-sites, and it stands for Ask Me Anything, and it allows people to literally be asked anything by the users of Reddit. As far as AMAs goes, this was a pretty standard affair. For one, you can tell Paul is clearly dictating to someone instead of Paul typing each individual response personally, and you can also tell that whoever is sat at the computer is carefully selecting the best questions for Paul to answer. You know, he isn't going to respond to anything salacious or to the trolls and so you know that this is just another tentacle of the media machine of course it would be a shame to have paul end up doing an ama like woody harrelson or james corden where it just devolves into mockery and name calling but then again that also would have been quite funny with a bit of schadenfreude thrown in Overall, though, this whole thing was a very fun experience for me, and to see Paul appear on my favourite time-wasting website of choice is a novelty that I could only sing the praises of. You know, that was a feeling I didn't have until most Beatle content was revealed to go on my streaming service of choice. You know, it's all very serendipitous. Sadly, though, I was gutted that I was working at my pub at the time, and I was unable to watch the questions live and type something myself. Anyway, it's time to go through some of the questions from this AMA. Of course, I'm not going to do all the questions. Not all of them were belters, so I've just picked what is hopefully some of the more interesting ones, at least from my point of view anyway. 
Let's start off with something quite standard. In fact, something so standard, I, I kind of assumed it was a member of McCartney's staff who created a Reddit account to make sure he was being asked only the most sanitized questions. User Sergeant Pepper 50 said, Hey Paul, I love your work. McCartney 3 is such a blessing in these difficult times. My question is, what's the song on the new album that you had the most fun playing? It sounds like you had a great time on all tracks. Paul then replies, The Kiss of Venus was very interesting because that was a song I had to play straight on acoustic guitar. It was fun to do and I was happy with how it turned out. See what I mean by how standard that answer is and and the, the question? Maybe let's go on to something like Frasier. Let's go on to user Fraser 271009 who asked, What has been your favourite song to ever perform live? Paul replies, It varies. On the last tour, Come On To Me and Fur You were my favourites. But Hey Jude is always great. It's great to see the crowd singing all at once in one voice. It's inspiring. User James McCartney 1 wrote, Hello Paul, I'm grateful for yet another magnificent album from you. Here are my questions. Are you satisfied with the end results of this album as you were with the previous studio works? Which songs from McCartney 3 would you most like to play live in concert if such things can be resumed? Bonus, which song did you play a saucepan, winky face? Love from Spain. And the user actually puts his name, Jamie. Paul replies, yeah, this one is perhaps more pleasing because I wasn't trying to make an album. It was quite a surprise and a pleasant one. As for songs to play live, I think Sliding could be fun, as well as Find My Way or The Kiss of Venus. Bonus answer, I sometimes play the saucepan at parties when I've had a drink. User Jay-Z Spinal Fusion, (laughs) what name, typed, Hey Paul, love the new album. I feel like I say it with every new album, but this one particularly feels like something special. And I have a two-part question. Ram was met with lukewarm to negative reviews upon its release, but has since gone on to be considered possibly your best solo album by many critics. Have you personally viewed Ram since its initial release? Also, do you have any plans for Ram's 50th anniversary coming this May? I know the Maca fanbase is always happy to have more Ram-related releases. Thank you so much for doing this, Paul. Hope you have a wonderful Christmas time. Stay healthy. Paul then replies... Well, when Ram came out, I was proud of it, but yeah, the reviews weren't great, so I didn't bother with it for a few years, until my nephew Jay told me it was his favourite album. Since then, I've heard quite a few people say the same thing, so it's back in favour. And the only plans I have for May next year are to do a dance around the Maypole. I think this was (laughs) before the Ram uh, half-speed... A decent vinyl pressing was announced. Maybe Paul didn't even know. Maybe he hadn't even decided then. Or maybe that's just a bit of marketing secrecy on his part. User cream underscore of underscore the underscore crap put, Hi Paul, I loved Egypt Station and I can't wait to find the time to listen to McCartney 3 with all the time and respect to you and your music deserves. Is there a song in your catalogue that you thought, hmm, I'd love to change something about it, maybe the lyrics, maybe the instruments, and have you ever thought about revamping, not that they need it though, or making an album with old songs with very different arrangements? Thank you, you've always been an inspiration and a role model and an enjoyment to listen to. Much love from Chile. Paul replies, I don't have any plans to... I don't have any plans to do that at the moment, but it's always an intriguing idea to reimagine 
songs. <laughs> Folks, it's clear that McCartney 3 Reimagined 3 Imagined was already in the works at this point. I was thinking about doing She's Leaving Home this morning and thinking, that's not a bad song, and it would be interesting to redo the backing for Waterfalls from McCartney 2 because I used a cheap synthesizer, and so it could be intriguing to hear it with a really good proper orchestra. A, a point which uh, Rick Rubin shot down quite roundly in the McCartney 321 series on Hulu slash Disney+. Plus. Anyway, but then he continues... But then again, the cheap synthesizer might be the winner. And the truth is, I don't have the time to do that because I'm doing things like going on the internet to talk to you. User vegetables underscore vegetab wrote the final comment I'm going to go through with today. Hi, Paul. So excited that you're doing this chat. I adore McCartney 3. Recently, you've talked about how you're a saver. I'm curious if you've hung on to any of your old outfits, like your iconic white suit that you wore a lot in 67, or your strawberry jacket from the Wings days. Paul replies, I've got a load of old clothes that are just in storage. I don't really use them. I've got one or two jackets from the 60s that amazingly still fit, but Stella's more interested in looking at them than I am. And now, everyone, now that we've gotten the silly public internet conversation out of the way, we can now move on to the official interviews that McCartney gave in the lead-up to the release of McCartney 3. Now, I'm pretty sure everyone listening to this podcast has read, heard, and watched a metric shit-ton of Paul McCartney interviews. However, on the whole, I did feel like this set for this album was far less grating than what we've gotten in the past few years. Yes, we got a lot of repeat questions... Yes, Paul does give a lot of the same anecdotes about each song. And yes, we do get excessive Beatles chitter chat. But if that bothers you, then simply don't listen to any of Paul's interviews because it truly is par for the course by this point. However, there were a couple of things that made this lot stand out. Firstly, the majority of interviews were done with other famous people. This meant that Paul would have less time to spend pleasing the interviewer and making it a nice memorable experience for them and instead was just chilling out and having fun with one of his relative peers. Secondly, the pandemic meant that the majority of interviews were recorded over Skype or over the phone, either in Paul's recording studio or man cave or front room, meaning Paul didn't even have to leave his home. So not only was he more relaxed, but he was also surrounded by visual cues to help jog his memory where necessary. And finally... I, and finally, I genuinely think Paul was looking forward to getting back out there and talking to people. As a podcaster, I never had this issue, but during lockdown, a lot of people were comparatively isolated, Paul among them, and I think he was just excited to talk about this album, more so than usual. Now, I did start these notes quite some time ago, and as you know, I have a penchant for getting distracted by other episodes. But yeah, going back, it seems that my modus operandi was to transcript everything I heard. And yeah, this was a pretty strenuous thing to do, especially when I found out that Nicholas Leroy, one of my recent guests on Mac In Your Attic, aka the creator of thepaulmccarneyproject.com, had already done the whole thing for me, which certainly made me feel even sillier. So, yeah, an awful lot of work went into this segment, which I could have just copied and pasted the majority of. But either way, don't worry. I'm not going to sit here and read the entire interviews for you. And instead, I'm just going to go through a quick summary of each conversation, what they touched on, as well as a few choice highlight quotes for both me and you to chew on. I was also going to do a cheeky little, like, topic bingo, where I was going to get like do a tally of all the times Paul ends up, like, repeating himself, like, talking about Bill Black's bass or something like that, or however many times he mentioned deep, deep feeling, but the numbers got 
pretty wild pretty quickly. So I am sorry if you wanted to play along at home, but my gosh, this episode just needs to get out there, doesn't it? <laughs> right, without any further ado, let's begin the Capital MPL backed media train. So, starting off, we have Paul's interview with Zane Lowe, who's a DJ here in the UK on BBC Radio 1, which took place slash was released on December 21st, 2020. This was the first that I was aware of during this junket, and overall, I'm very pleased with it. Of course, Zane Lowe fucking knows his music, and i got to say, I wasn't totally upset by the questions he was asking Macca. Like, yeah, some of them were clearly plants, but some of it was actually pretty damn interesting. Of course, the first thing mentioned is Bill Black's upright bass, and then Paul goes into talking about COVID lockdown, writing new songs, finishing off what he was meant to do last year, etc. Zane loved the rockdown pun in stark contrast to me. Paul talks about how the album's helped save him during lockdown, and the album is about being still slash cosmically conscious, which is a nice little reference, especially for all of you people out there waiting for that off-the-ground episode. Paul then reveals that his Appaloosa horse, the one from the back cover of the album, is called Shyam, which is probably the top trivia fact for me from the whole interview, to be honest. They then talk about instruments, how therapeutic playing an instrument is. That leads into a story about his first instrument was a trumpet that his dad bought him, the same story we would hear again on McCartney 321. He then talks about how he can't resist walking past a piano without playing it, and this then leads into an anecdote about a rainy holiday in Morocco where he wrote My Valentine for Nancy on the hotel piano. They then recap on the first solo McCartney album. We get all the classic stuff, the four track Struder Machine, having to mic it in to get the best sound rather than anything technical, all that crap. Then we move on to the formation of Wings before then glossing over them entirely. There's then the standard McCartney 2 chat, lo-fi as a phrase is used, synths and heralding the 80s, all that standard jazz. Then we have some chat about how Paul isn't a person who reflects on the past too much and gets not all that hung up on anniversaries because he's always moving forward. Paul then mentions how he can be lazy because he can just wiki his entire history. And then he tells a funny story about how Doris Day once told him that time is an illusion and he thought that that was trippy. Then we get into a story that was brought up oddly a couple of times during these interviews. And I'm not sure if this was one of the plants, purely because it was mentioned twice. But it's the idea of Paul performing Blackbird in front of civil rights activists back in the day. Zane says... That must have been an amazing moment for you to perform that song, Blackbird, in front of Thelma Mothershed Ware and Elizabeth Eckford, who of course were two individuals part of the Little Rock Nine. And I know a few years back you actually got a chance to perform that, and they were in the audience, and we haven't spoken since, so I wonder how that experience was for you. Paul replies, It was fantastic. It was beautiful because, as a kid, I'd seen, like you probably, the newsreel where it's all these white supremacists booing these black kids going to school... And they're just teenage girls, you know, the two you're mentioning. And so I always felt annoyed at my race, the whites, how they could be so crazy and that horrible to people. You know, we didn't have so much of that in Britain, I must say. It wasn't like the Deep South. It was only when we went down there that you started to realise that it was quite intense. So I'd always heard about Little Rock and how it had been a famous point in the civil rights history. And so we were playing Little Rock and I was able to offer tickets to the girls. Someone said they were still around, but they're ladies now. They had a great education because they stuck with it. They went to a good school. So I was very proud to talk to them and to play Blackbird because I introduced Blackbird on the show as being about civil rights. So it really was a warm feeling. 
I felt very proud to meet these ladies and just to see the resolution of a story like that. So it was a great moment for me. They were very pleased and so we all had a great time. It was, you know, again, some kind of circle from when I was a kid seeing those black and white movies. Here we were and I was with two girls that I saw on those newsreels. And you know what? They turned out great. Then Paul mentions his idea for Find My Way literally comes from driving the car one day, you know, literally being able to find his way somewhere, knowing his left from right, not getting lost at night, etc. Again, it feels like another one of those get lost games he'd play with Linda back in the day. He also talks about the contrast of the anxiety lyrics in the pre-chorus of Find My Way was entirely intentional and he compares it to doing what John did in Getting Better, you know, happy Paul, negative John, but doing it on his own. We got another quote here. Zane says, did I ever ask you about what your favourite Beatle record was? And did you swerve that question? I can't remember. Paul replies, I always swerve it. Whenever people do ask me that, I always say, you know my name, look up the number, which is a zany little B-side that nobody knows, but we had such fun making it. It's a little comedy record, and I just remember the joy of making it. But there's a lot of songs that I love of the Beatles, you know. I think Strawberry Fields is a great song. I think Hey Jude worked out great. I've got a lot of favourite songs. Blackbird I love, Eleanor Rigby I love. Zane continues, let me ask you this. If you could create an aggregate in your head, top of your head, which one do you think you've probably listened to the most throughout your life? What would be the natural draw? And Maka replies, I would say probably Let It Be as a song. It's the most ubiquitous. It's sort of got everywhere. Ubiquitous from the Latin ubiquo, meaning everywhere. Come on. And another great bit of trivia from Paul there. I love the fact that he's taught me something there, especially when he tried to teach me piano chords on McCartney 321 very, very poorly. They continue talking about vegetarianism and how great it is that veggie is now normal and common in everyday life. Zane then asked Paul about Seize the Day and the idea of Paul drawing upon Beatle-esque sounds. Again, as we know, Paul was concerned whether it was a bit too retro. Then they talk about how the Beatles were so successful that, the, that everyone had to tip their hat to them in some degree. And finally, Zane asks Paul whether there was any mantra that had gotten him through his life. And the mantra Paul picks at the end of this interview is Shakespeare's own, to thine own self be true, which I thought was a very fitting quote when looking back over his life. Pressing ever onward, and we now come to Paul's latest interview with renowned radio host slash shock jock Howard Stern. Macker has been a staple of Stern's show ever since his first interview whilst promoting New back in 2013. If you haven't heard Stern's show before, he's basically the self-dubbed king of all media, which basically comes down to the fact that he's the biggest, most well-paid radio personality ever. Uh, he, As an interviewer, he gets the biggest stars on his show, and his audience, especially compared to this podcast, is unfathomably massive. Stern has been around forever and almost single-handedly made the station Sirius XM. Whilst other crass shock jocks like Opie and Anthony fell by the wayside, Stern is still here and is as poignant, biting, rude, interruptive and funny as ever. Previously, Paul has done his appearances in studio, in person, but what with the pandemic and all, we have to settle for an awful, awful phone line conversation instead, but it'll do, I guess. But what did Howard and Paul have to talk about? Well, Howard's first question is whether Paul is getting laid these days, and it leads to Paul talking about lockdown with, with his daughter Mary and 
how that had the negative flip side as Nancy was out of the country during the whole period and that was a lot on him. Perhaps the pain and separation anxiety, you know, due to lack of Nancy, helped him throw himself into McCartney 3 there, perhaps. Then Paul goes into the standard COVID slash McCartney 3 chat. He also talks about being part of the post-World War II generation and how his parents inspired him through those tough times that they'd been living through now. Paul also talks about expecting civil unrest in the UK that largely didn't happen, although that civil unrest is kind of happening now, but uh, <laughs> I guess we'll see what happens with that in the future. One of the top comments is about how Howard interrupts Paul a lot in this interview. And I think that's because Howard is literally one of the few celebs large enough and rich enough to actually do that to Paul McCartney. But, you know, Paul's also an older guy and he pauses a lot more and Howard does jump on that. So, yeah, that is a bit annoying. Then Stern moves on to the wet markets and Paul really lays into the Chinese government here for not shutting down wet markets and how barbaric it is to eat bats and, you know, how the hygienic practices are just not up to scratch and stuff like that. How cruel it is for them to keep the animals that way. I mean... Paul talks about obscenities taking place in these wet markets and how not ending them is the current equivalent of letting off an atomic bomb. It's pretty crazy to see Paul be so outspoken here. It's very emotive, very strong language, and regardless of your opinion on the matter, it's incredibly fascinating to question why Paul would choose here and now to take such a stance. But we all know Paul is an environmentalist first and celebrity personality second. Well, no, he's a musician first, activist second, celebrity third. There's also a funny moment here where Howard and his co-host Robin joke about how Macca would actually have the power and authority to pressure the Chinese government, which is a great line. Paul then bemoans how COVID ended the Glastonbury performance and how he was so upset for the people who'd bought their tickets. Yeah, uh, I actually had a friend who was actually meant to be going to that performance and I uh, I was hoping to interview the director that was going to film that that concert as well, but K Sarah Sarah. Howard questions whether Paul would own any property without instruments, and unsurprisingly, no, Paul doesn't have any property without instruments. They then discuss Ringo coming live with Paul uh, and how exciting that that must be at their age. I tell you, it wasn't that exciting when I saw them do, but what are you going to do? Howard then asks Paul a hypothetical of. Why didn't Paul keep the Beatles going with just George and Paul and Ringo? Uh, you know, with a, com with a combined McCartney and all things must pass. And Paul delightfully, quote unquote, hears his point, but he shoots it down, citing that they were all in too much pain for clever ideas like that. And how there is a beauty to how the Beatles story played out, which I totally agree with. Howard then uses this as a chance to pressure Paul into going into whether he underestimated George Harrison as a songwriter. And Paul does concede. He did say it was easy to underestimate George, which is a sly little statement there. I also thought it was quite interesting that Paul admitted that when George came in with a song like Something, that by that point, no one in the band was actually shocked by an amazing song anymore. And how it, it was basically just four working men working out, working a song, not four guys looking at glossy stories of themselves going, God, aren't we all amazing? Then we're going to come on to a quick quote here. Stern says, You've written hits for other people. You gave the Rolling Stones their first hit song. You're a generous human being, Paul replies. The thing is, the scene was generous. 
we were all excited that we were down in London and we were getting record contracts, you know. So it wasn't like any animosity. There's a rivalry, but not a bad one. It's creative. It's a good thing, I think. We would ring up the Stones and say, when's your single coming out? Say, June 30th, okay. Well, we'll put ours out July 30th. It's funny. I did the Rolling Stone cover with Taylor Swift and she just emailed me recently and she says, I wasn't telling anyone, but I've got another album. I was going to put it out on my birthday, which I think was the 10th. And then she said, but I found out you were going to put out an album, McCartney 3, out on the 10th, so I moved to the 18th. Then she found out we were coming out on the 18th, so she moved hers back to the 10th. You know, people do keep out of each other's way. It's a nice thing to do. Then Stern typically goes into a baiting session where he pits the Stones against the Beatles, and he comes out and says, the Beatles are better than the Stones, right? And Paul, ever savvy, does mock Howard's attempts at coaxing controversy. Paul does admit, though, that they are a blues band and the Beatles were more varied. They then discuss Pepper versus Satanic Majesties, etc., and how the Stones did a lot of stuff that they did. But Paul just sees it as them being influential and that they were all friends, so it was all cool. Howard asks whether Paul was offered any roles for standard parts in Hollywood movies, and Paul tells a great story about how there was this Italian director, Franco Zifrelli, who offered him the role of Romeo in his version of Romeo and Juliet. Here's a quote from Paul DeNoyer's Conversations with McCartney, where Paul discusses his interaction with the Juliet from that film. He says, I took her out, Olivia Hussey. This was before I met Linda. I took her out to a nightclub. I quite fancied her. She was gorgeous with long, dark hair. I sent her a telegram. You're a beautiful Juliet. She sent me one back. You'd make a great Romeo. It was all very, ooh, ooh, romantic swoon. You'd vomit now, I suppose. My kids wouldn't believe it. Oh, Dad, you didn't do that, did you? Howard then starts talking about Billie Eilish and how she can do things in her bedroom at home in terms of music production. And Paul even mentions doing a FaceTime with Billie Eilish while she was with Stella at a fashion thing. Apparently, he even likes her music. Then they talk about Paul writing with John and how natural they were as songwriters. Howard then asks if if he was more of a self-conscious about the silly love songs and you know Paul gives his typical answer Howard then queries whether the Beatles did indeed have true power to veto a song off an album Paul called it a democracy examples that would come to mind would be like Cold Turkey or What's the New Mary Jane Howard then asks if John could have vetoed Let It Be if he wanted speaking of which they then move on to the Peter Jackson film and even at this point Paul says he doesn't know when it's coming out I mean, it still hasn't come out. It's coming out now in November as a three-part series. Paul would not have been aware of any of this at this time. Paul clearly loves Jackson, though, in this interview. And whilst the idea of re-releasing the old Let It Be was floated, again, it's clear that Paul was much happier to do something new. Though I do still hope we are getting the original documentary in some form. You know, it was all very positive spin in terms of this Let It Be stuff. And then... Paul ends with saying that there is actually a sequence where he and John on the piano are going to be doing a slower, working it out kind of version of She Came In Through the Bathroom Window, which does sound very exciting indeed. Again, overall, I was very surprised with how much I liked this interview, though a lot of it does come down to the fact that I do quite like Howard Stern, even though he is a bit braggadocious and a bit interruptive. He does ask good questions, and he does meet celebrities on their level, as he's mega famous, mega rich himself, and he's genuinely funny. No one can take that away from Stern. As a comedian, he is so, so good at his job. 
and it, it it was it was light, it was fun, and yeah, rather enjoyed it. Moving on to another comedian now, and this was the only one I remember watching live at the time, as it was coming out, and for good reason because it's Chris fucking Rock, aka one of the true great stand-ups of all time as the interviewer, and I could hardly resist. This was done for Apple or for iTunes or something, but who cares? It's the interview that is the important thing here, and I could tell immediately that I was going to like this one, as it was far more conversational and freewheeling than I ever could have imagined for a modern McCartney interview outside of someone like Stern. I also knew that I was going to go into this one with a certain level of positivity, just because it's Chris Rock. Again, not only is he really funny, but I've I've seen him on podcasts and in interviews before, and he's a very, very smart, very confident guy who has, again, a level of wealth and fame that means he's more comfortable chatting with the Big Mac. Though, since I am going to be ribbing Idris Elba for, for basically networking his way into Paul's life, it does need to be pointed out that Paul and Chris Rock are both part of that Obama Democratic self-loving crew with Chris even performing at the Kennedy Center Awards for Obama and Oprah and who was sat between them both? Yeah, it was Paul. On another note, the actual video itself was far more artistically edited and framed when compared to the other videos. It seems like Paul may have had had some extra Roman Coppola-esque setup of cameras here to get all the shots they needed. You know, we get shots of Paul from different angles and then we get different angles of his fingers playing the piano, and it's all cut together very nicely. Also, this interview was only 15 minutes long, and therefore did not outstay its welcome like some of the other conversations, which was a real boon for me. Anyway, what do they have to say in this interview? Well, first, Chris starts off by saying that when he normally speaks to other famous people, that he inevitably ends up comparing notes with them, or at least comparing what their latest projects are, but that if you do that to a Beatle, you sound like a complete narcissist. Uh, and I felt that whenever I've interviewed anyone remotely famous and I've tried to compare something in their life to mine, and it's like, oh, God, they don't even know what you're talking about, do they? Chris then asks Paul whether he had recorded any extra stuff for McCartney 3 or whether what was recorded was on the album, and Paul denies this, giving the whole I never expected to make an album spiel, which does dodge the question rather gracefully rather than going into whether there is bonus content that he isn't allowed to tell us about. On to the first quote, Chris says, Because you realise, okay, we're all going to die at some point, right? And when we all die, everything we made is going to come out, no matter what. No matter how carefully you choose things, it's going to come out. I want to know, what song or songs do you hope never come out? Paul says, We got stuff that wasn't released because it wasn't good enough. Chris, that's what I'm talking about. Paul says, But the trouble is, like you say, everything comes out. So what happens is, you'll have an album and they say, have you got any tracks that are lurking around? And you say, there's this old thing, it's terrible, but it becomes a bonus extra. Everything you did becomes a bonus extra. The Beatles anthology, we looked at everything we'd ever done, and me and George, at the time, we said, we should call the next album, Scraping the Bottom of the Barrel. Because, you know, that's what's happening. It's like, every little boom thing you took is recorded, and it's going to be out there. Very embarrassing. Chris then mentions that McCartney has the best hearing of any of the classic rockers that he's ever spoken with. Paul cites how he used to sit with his ears against the speakers during the recording of Hey Jude, which is mad. 
Paul then says his favourite song on the album is Women and Wives, but not only that, he immediately launches into it for Chris and for us. And what makes me laugh most here is how it relates to my chat with Dylan Seavey earlier in how it, identical it sounds to the album and demo versions of the song. Anyway, they then joke about how women and wives always give the best inspiration for songs, and at that point I couldn't help but draw a parallel between women and wives and mistress and maid, which I thought was quite interesting. But then Paul reveals that he has known Chris to talk about his divorce for hours, and you know the topic of women, which shows how close the two really are. Then they discuss how Paul is happy when writing some songs and how some songs are born out of sadness and can make him sad. Then we get the first real question I think I've ever heard anyone ask Mr. McCartney, and this is when Chris asks him what percentage of people have ever paid him back the money he has loaned them, which is an excellent question to ask, because no matter what Paul's answer is, it will certainly be revealing. Chris himself says that he's probably only had about 3% of people ever pay him back, but Paul says about 30 which, considering the amount of money Paul has lent people, is quite good, actually. But, as we know, if you co-write some songs with Paul, and then you end up owing him some money, those songs then become his. Then we get another quote here, which I really enjoyed. Chris goes, You are one of the greatest authors of love. I'm just interested, your take on love, your take on marriage. Okay, here's a question. Because... My shrink, Tommy, I have to downplay me. When you first meet a woman, do you have to downplay your beetleness? Or did you, like, you know, you're essentially like a royal person. Do you have to be like, okay, we're going to eat a McDonald's on the first two dates because I don't want to blow your mind? And Paul just replies with, no, I prefer the blow your mind route. Come on, man, you know, why not? Chris then goes, I took a woman to a movie the, the other night. I rented out the entire theatre to see Tenant. It was just us. And my shrink was like, you can't do that anymore. You have to play it down for at least a year. Paul then responds with, just show your range, Chris. Show your range. You're right. Show your range. You've got the big stuff. You've got the little stuff. <laughs> I love the idea that Paul just, when he met Nancy, he just tried to blow her mind. <laughs> Whoa, you sly dog, Paul. Then Chris and Paul then start talking about age and how young the Beatles were when they started. And then... Chris asks if Paul's still going to be playing when he's 100. Paul then gets excited about getting that telegram from the Queen. But then if he gets that when he's 100, she'll be 120. So he might not even get it from the Queen anymore. <laughs> and then Paul does his little spiel about being wheeled on stage, singing yesterday. And then Chris ends things with quite a prophetic comment because he mentions how he'd like to hear Paul when he's older doing the Johnny Cash record, the one that he did with one Rick Rubin. You've definitely heard the uh, the song, even if you haven't heard the album. You know, I hurt myself today. You know, you've definitely all heard that one. And he says he'd like Paul to do something similar. And Paul ends with, well, I will do that one when I'm approximately 99. I'll be making it. So stick around, Chris. Stick around. What should be mentioned here as well is that this was not the only interview Paul was doing that night. He was really on the media train as... It was all part of the Twas the Night Before McCartney 3. So the day before McCartney 3 came out, you got the video for Find My Way, which we discussed earlier. You then got the chat with Chris Rock. And then Paul was to appear on The Jimmy Fallon Show. The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon, should I say. We all know that Jimmy Fallon is not the most beloved of Tonight Show hosts. Give me, you know, Carson, Letterman... 
And then in wider circles, you know, I'm a big Conan guy as well. It's it's a shame that, that there isn't more interaction between Conan and Paul. I know there's one interview, but I'd like there to be much more. And yeah, we had to settle with Paul going and talking with Jimmy Fallon. But ironically, this is the only one that I cannot find any clips of online, so I wasn't able to do it in full. Though I'm not saying that with any sadness, because I don't enjoy Jimmy Fallon as an interviewer at all with his fake laugh. I had to talk about him interviewing Tom Waits on my other podcast down in the hole. That was a slog to sit through as well. Though I was able to get a few choice quotes from the Paul McCartney project. Very grateful to Nicholas Leroy there. Go check out his episode of Mac in your attic as well. But yeah, I'm just going to read out a few choice quotes that were gathered for me. Didn't get to see the whole thing. It's my loss, I'm sure. When asked about the cover of McCartney 3, Paul said... It's going to be called McCartney 3, and we could just have a 3, like a normal 3, or we could have some Roman numerals, and I thought, how else can you do a 3? And I thought of dice, and I just thought that can do, because then the idea was, if it was a real dice, it's diagonal, so I thought, what if we had it on its edge? And I just wanted it to say McCartney and have the dice, so I rang up a good friend of mine called Ed Rusha, who's... One of his specialties, he has many, is lettering. So he actually did that lettering for me, and talking to him, I said, you know, we will have the dice. And we worked out how it would be on its side and how it looks, so we did it. And later on, Fallon asks him, do you think sometimes about collaborating with other artists like Taylor Swift or Bob Dylan? Paul replies, yes, I do. Sometimes I let it happen, I let it come to me. So if someone gets in touch with me and says, I'd like to work with you, that's more likely... (laughs) That's what happened with Kanye. You know, he came through the grapevine and that would be interesting for him to work with me. So I thought, ooh, yeah, I'll give that a shot. So that was very interesting. Again, I didn't really know we was making a song. I sat around going, ta-dee-doo-dee-da. It just went on for a couple of days. And it was only a couple of months later when I got the track sent to me. I didn't think I'd done anything, but suddenly I got sent four or five seconds. I liked that one. Though I had to say, am I on this record? I was told, that's you on the guitar. They sped it up so it wasn't recognisable, but I don't think I'm really into ringing someone up to collaborate. There was talk of me doing something with Bob Dylan that I was quite sort of into, but it kind of fizzled out. And then there's another little quote here. I'm not sure if it's Paul talking to Jimmy Fallon. I think it is. And he goes, I don't know if you remember, but you had sent me a couple of ideas you had for songs. And the thing is, no, 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 you did. I'm still feverishly looking for them because they were good and I lost them, but they were good. Not that good, but good. Seems like Paul was definitely carrying that interview the entire way, but like I say, those are the only two quotes I could find from it. Next up, we have what was described as the perfect Christmas present for Beatles fans. Okay, that's a nice phrase and all, but (laughs) the entire cavern gig was certainly more of a Christmas present, but we aren't going to dwell on that. This is when McCartney met Idris Elba, the interview for the BBC. Yes, this is the notorious interview with highly acclaimed, venerated and accomplished actor and DJ Idris Elba. You know him as Stringer Bell from HBO's The Wire, as Luther on the BBC. He's been in Star Trek, The Suicide Squad, American Gangster, yada yada yada. You should all know who he is. However, what he's not known for is being an interviewer, and by God could you tell in this. I mean, his questions were so banal and by the book and being there, done that, that I really struggle to find any actual quotes worth including or highlighting here. So I am just going to laboriously go through the whole run without any highlights. (laughs) 
Was this just a case of the BBC trying to find someone famous and unexpected to interview Paul? Is this a case of where it's like him and Chris Rock, where they're, they're actually friends behind the scenes, but no one really knew? Is this just two A-list celebs who attend all the same parties, finding an excuse to hang out and have a chat? Or is it, as I first suspected, that this was all groundwork, networking, to properly introduce Idris to Paul to al allow Idris to have a track on the Three Imagined album? I hate to sound cynical, but I do really think that the latter has something to do with it. Anyway, let's dive right in. We start off with a little title sequence, a bit like Up Close, but even more like Bond, really, with Idris dramatically walking up to the camera, and right away the idea of him being enough of a fan to warrant this meetup feels incredibly forced. Like you mentioned, seeing him live doesn't mention one, a single song title that means something to him, and doesn't say that he grew up listening to the Beatles, all kind of prerequisites in my opinion. But anyway, he and Paul sit down whilst talking about how they have to stay six feet apart. This is still the height of Covid, how good the other looks and all that spiel. Idris talks about liking the album, and then Paul goes into the standard lockdown with Mary narrative that we've heard all before. I swear, though, that they use a slightly different mix of long-tailed winter bird in this sequence, talking about the album, because the vocals are noticeably higher in one part. They then joke about how Paul recorded a shaker for seven minutes for a song back before sequences came out, and he hints at how computer-based his life is even now. Idris scrambles to remember what year Paul's first album came out and asks about it and the, the recording. Paul mentions getting married to Linda, the four-track student machine. He literally does the same anecdote about having to get the mic, having the right sound again. You know, we've heard all this before. Paul then talks about not knowing he was making an album and compares the 10 songs to, you know, everyone cleaning out their cupboards and tidying up the house during lockdown. Idris talks about picking up a guitar for the first time during lockdown and he reluctantly gets out his own guitar and he gets Macca to guess the chord that he's playing. I've got to admit, it's obvious that Paul would get it, but it's quite a charming little skit for what it's worth. Paul guesses correctly that it was E minor, C and D. Idris then asks Paul whether he creates melodies consciously or whether he's just a vessel for inspiration. And Paul responds that he's always picking up jingles on TV and regular music and it all gets kind of stored in his head and it's hard for him to describe it, but he just feels his way through it. He says, I'm lucky because I don't find it that hard. He then just calls it magic. Paul then talks about the early days of being a musician and about how it's imitating someone else before you get to put your own spin on things. We get a lot of talk about Paul being there during the original rock and roll scene in Liverpool back in the day, as well as their influences at the time. He also mentions he's in awe of Stevie Wonder, which was nice. Once again, we get some more talk about Blackbird and how it's a civil rights song, and Paul goes into the same Little Rock story. Then Paul talks about how the Beatles wouldn't play for segregated audiences. Idris then asks Paul what other hobbies he has, and Macca mentions horse riding again and how horse riding made him feel powerful after the Beatles' breakup, and how he likes the height of riding a horse, and how it's like riding on the top deck of a bus, which is quite astute, actually, I would agree. Then they discuss fame, and Paul actually admits that he is slightly annoyed by people interrupting him during dinner, which I totally sympathise with, you know, obviously because I'm interrupted by being so famous all the time in my own right. Paul then explains his working class background and how it informed his worldview. He then recalls a time 
of when he thought he was going to get famous, the first thing he was going to do was buy his own tin of condensed milk and a pound of sausages, which was very funny. And that only stood out to me because I actually watched Batman Begins the night before, and in that, like, Bruce and uh, his young romantic interest, Rachel, at the time, they talk about condensed milk as well, so it's definitely a very British thing. Then Paul goes into the classic father anecdote about buying him a trumpet and trading it in for a guitar so he could sing with it. Continuing with his dad, he mentions how his father loved crosswords and word puzzles and that led to him being the only kid in class who could spell the word phlegm. Then Paul talks about his education at Liverpool School for Boys and describes his education as good. Paul then shows off some Spanish that he picked up and the translation, it turns out, comes out as Three rabbits in a tree playing a drum. Why yes, why no? Why yes, I have seen it. He mentions how his kids will kill him for doing that bit, and I imagine it's something that he does to intentionally annoy slash embarrass them at social occasions. He then comes out with an equally useless phrase in German also. He says, Jacob the raven was the cheekiest of all birds I have ever met. And that reminds me of a little bit that I do, which is copied from a cartoon called Dexter's Lab, where you say... Um, hello, my name is Sam and I'm a small cheese omelette, or uh, Je m'appelle Sam et je suis petit omelette du flamage, no? Paul then talks about how cool it was to hang out with John and about the age difference and how that kind of embarrassed him, especially when it came to George as well. Then they mention how none of Paul's other writing partners have been liking his experiences with John, very rem reminiscent of our Flowers in the Dirt episode. Then... Idris jokes about them doing something together and he says, is there a sessions coming? And obviously this is where his part on Three Imagined came from. Paul then discusses his collab with Kanye again and how he loved his album My Dark Beautiful Twisted Fantasy, which really made me happy because I love that album also. I love how he was clear that he wasn't going to be doing any rapping in his collab with Kanye. Then he talks about how he didn't know he was going to appear on any of those songs, yada, yada, yada. Paul then also mentions liking a rap song that Kanye West did where he sampled Dear Prudence, which I couldn't find anything about. Like The, the closest thing I could find was the Jay-Z song Encore, which samples the trumpet introduction to John Holt's cover of I Will. There was also the Grey album, which mashed up the Beatles' White album and Jay-Z's The Black album. But yeah, if anyone knows of a Kanye West song that samples Dear Prudence, please let me know. Paul then touches on raising his kids and making them go to normal schools, even recording them getting picked on by other kids singing Mull of Kintyre at them. Paul then mentions that he has a Christmas covers album that he will likely never release, but he's sure that people would enjoy. It's basically just a little thing for the family. Idris then mentions he's friends with Stella McCartney and how Stella apparently asked him to ask Paul who their favourite child is. Paul then predictably says that Here, There and Everywhere is his favourite song that is ever written. Then, shockingly, Idris Elba talks to Paul about yesterday, and it, despite being a big Beatles fan and grown up with Paul, he didn't know the scrambled egg story. Yeah, I know, some of you have spat out your coffee, or in my case, decaf coffee. Then, Idris talks about how Paul was very famous from a young age and juggling that, again, more working class background stuff. Paul then says he is thinking of doing another album that he can't ever stop and that he's basically writing every minute of every day in his spare time. Yeah, like I say, pretty basic bog-standard interview if you've never seen an interview with Paul McCartney before. Again, 
I don't want to be too cynical about this and go on and on about it again. Though, at the end of this conversation now, especially with the stuff about Stella and him being friends with Stella, and there's even a photo with Idris, Stella, Paul, and Mary McCartney, it basically just leads me to believe that this is just networking. It really is, folks. But let's press on to, well, an interview that mostly got under my craw at the time. This is the final one we're going to cover in this little segment, and that's Paul's appearance on the Adam Buxton podcast. And the reason... This one annoyed me, simple. It was the green-eyed monster on my back. It was jealousy. And the fact that Paul went on another podcast was almost too much to bear. First, he appears on the Soda Jerker podcast, and now this. I nearly went into cardiac arrest, but I'm okay now. Enough time has passed. We can now dissect it. For those of you who are not in the know, Adam Buxton is a very successful writer, comedian, and podcaster also sometimes an actor, and is one of those people where I annoyingly focus on the fact that they went to school with other famous people rather than acknowledging all of the constant hard work they do, but, you know, that's my problem, not his. And at the end of the day, no matter how jealous or butthurt I was, or am, this podcast was really fucking good. I really enjoyed it. It inspired me to listen to other Adam Buxton podcasts, particularly his episode with comedian Stuart Lee, and... Along with the aforementioned Soda Jerkers episode that Paul did, it only strengthens my resolve that Paul should totally appear on more podcasts, even if it's never this one. Anyway, let's begin with a quote from Adam Buxton in his own kind of solo housekeeping segment, where he explains how he was going to approach the material. It's delight. I spoke with Paul McCartney in mid-November of this year. I told a friend of mine that I was going to be talking with him, and they said, oh, you'll have to submit the questions in advance for approval. Well... I've had to do that for a couple of previous guests on the podcast, but I didn't have to do that this time. It was all very informal. Just as well, really, because with an exception of some of the questions provided by friends of the podcast, I really didn't have a formal interview planned. And instead, we had a nice rambling conversation about some obvious McCartney things and maybe some not-so-obvious McCartney things. Right, so firstly they say hello and have a little pitter-patter back and forth, but then they go right into an exchange that I really did enjoy. Buxton says... But, Paul, I want you to know that at any point, if you think what I'm saying is ludicrous or tedious, please don't feel like I will be offended if you pointed it out. McCartney then replies with, Ludicrous? That's a hip-hop artist, yeah? They then muse a little on songwriting before the idea of talking about tree huggers, which brings Buxton onto the idea of Christmas trees, and he says, But do you feel bad for those Christmas trees? I live right next to a big Christmas tree farm, and I always feel more guilty every Christmas season seeing the slaughter of the trees. Paul replies, Well, yeah, I know what you mean, but you've got to balance up the demise of the tree with the excitement of the kids and yourself, because I like a Christmas tree. Yeah, so I do Christmas trees, and I enjoy it. They then talk about television, and rather revealingly, it turns out Paul likes Homes Under the Hammer, American Pickers, Live at the Apollo, Mock the Week, Have I Got News for You, and Would I Lie to You, as well as all the regular guests that appear on those shows. He also mentions by name Lee Mack as a comedian he really likes, as well as Bob Mortimer. And guess who's recorded an interview for the Paul McCartney lyrics book? Bob Mortimer. They then discuss the new album, how much Buxton likes it, and at this point... There's talk of whether there are any times after an album that he doesn't like the product, and he goes into a very political spiel before coming on to the topic of McCartney 3. We get some cool chat about Temporary Secretary and Check My Machine, and even though we've heard it all before, I still enjoy it. 
Then, as a person who you should know is a huge fan of Marmite, if you watch Macro in your attic or you're a patron with the access to the video feed, we come to a part of the interview that really did tickle my fancy. Buxton says, I read in an interview that you once were a big fan of bagels with hummus and Marmite. Is that still a thing? Paul says, yeah, it's true. It's funny. That's what I do. If I'm in the studio or if I'm having a day at the office, sometimes I'll go into the office just to make sure that everyone can ask me all the questions they need answering. But yeah, it's mainly in the studio. And yeah, I love it. It's just my midday break. I'll have a little cup of tea. And I don't really drink that much tea, but it seems to be my ultimate meal for me. You toast the bagels, you put some Marmite on, then on top of that, you put some hummus. You know, the funny thing is, I'm always really disappointed when I'm finished. Crazy, I'm like a little kid. Oh, where's my bagel? It's ridiculous, really. They then stay on the topic of food, covering vegetarianism and artificial meat products, all whilst throwing in the classic Mary McCartney cooking for him during the McCartney 3 sessions. Then, after that, Buxton asked Paul about Bob Dylan's not giving a shit attitude and whether Paul is the same, and Paul admits he's kind of not, which then goes into two rather long monologues about how great Dylan and Neil Young are. This then leads the conversation into Dylan introducing the Beatles to Weed in 64, and Buxton frames it rather interestingly here in the sense that he asks Paul whether he genuinely remembers it or whether he just remembers everyone else's histography of it all, which I thought was quite cool. Carrying on the weed conversation, whilst discussing the inspiration for Here, There and Everywhere, Paul warns the youth of, of today against stronger modern weed, which is actually advice that I've taken on board now, as I am now, at the time of recording, nearly up to a month smoking free. Yeah, I haven't smoked for nearly a month now, and I'm quite proud of that. There is also some talk about Find My Way some more, and Adam Buxton even mentions that the song sounds like a Beck song, and then you hear Paul go, hmm, and then boom, Beck's cover of Find My Way comes into existence. Massive coincidence? I think not! Then we get some more classic Beatles talk about how they all stuck with John after the Bigger Than Jesus comments, the pressures of fame touring, the decision to end their touring, and the dynamic of the Lennon-McCartney relationship including, you know, whose name was going to go first, familiar stuff. Again, this is probably the most condensed part I've done in any of these interviews, because it was long. Then they talk about the Michael Lindsay Hogg film, Two of Us, and it was fun to hear Paul's thoughts on it, especially in terms of how accurate the portrayals were, but it does veer off quite quickly, and there isn't as much detail as I'd like, as they quickly go into the writing of Getting Better, as well as him discussing the comparisons between John's mother's death and his own. Then Buxton asks a question on behalf of one of his friends and renowned UK documentarian, as well as surprising potent uh, sex symbol Louis Theroux, as to which is his favourite Beatles song by John, and Paul cites Strawberry Fields Forever, Across the Universe, and Julia. We then get a touching rendition of the George and Paul hitchhiking holiday, and this goes into a bit where Paul basically says he would not allow his kids to hitchhike in the present day in the same way, because it's just not the same small world that he grew up in. After that, we get some chat about Paul's own favourite songs, as well as an almost word-for-word -word rendition of the Paul recording 4-5 Seconds with Kanye song, and how we didn't even know who was on the track, yada yada yada. And finally, Adam asks on behalf of the son of the bassist of the band Travis, who the coolest person he's ever met is, and we get both the diplomatic answer and the real one, which is a format I'd like Paul to do more, you know, the answer he's supposed to give and the answer he wants to give. And who is the coolest person that Paul's ever met? 
well, first of all, he says his wife, but then he also says Elvis as well, which did make me laugh. And yeah, we are at the end of the interviews now, folks. That is everything I was able to find. I think there were a couple of other smaller radio interviews, but these were all the big ones, and this episode's long enough anyway. But yeah, what did you think of all these interviews? Which one was your favourite one? I'm leaning more towards either the Chris Rock one or the Adam Buxton podcast. But yeah, do let me know at paulmccarneypod at gmail.com or at mccarneypod on Twitter, which was your favourite. And finally, 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 folks, we're going to come to what is the final part of our summary of McCartney 3, which is the last of the reviews that I never read out in the lead-up to the album. And so, as you may have guessed, these are the reviews that came out after the album's release. And by the end of this segment, hopefully you'll have the roundest possible view of the rock intelligentsia, the media conglomerate's opinions on this album. Also, as a side note, I know I probably should read some reviews of Three Imagined, but it wasn't the same success that McCartney 3 was. It didn't sell in the same kind of numbers and didn't have the same impact. It is one of those albums that you either love it or you hate it based on your own sensibilities. I don't think that there are many people who could write a review that would change someone's opinion on Three Imagined. So with all that said, let's just dive right in. Kitty Empire for The Guardian gave the album three stars out of five, and she said, The threads that connect McCartney 3 to its synth-heavy 1980 predecessor are perhaps less obvious than those leading back to its debut, but the main objective, experimentation, remains. Here, in common with the more recent chaos and creation, McCartney is following instincts, not tidying up too much and playing an array of instruments. If 3 suffers a little from the patchiness endemic to the mission statement... Musical freeness and a sense of unfettered let it be-ness is still the chief draw here. The album's opening shot, the mostly instrumental Longtail Winterbird, is a tremendous raga-like track that could have gone on for far longer than its allotted five minutes plus. The vocals don't break the spell too much. We also had a comment on Deep Deep Feeling, a comparison of Lavatory Lil to Polythene Pam, and a mention of Bill Black's bass guitar, something that will be in almost all of these reviews. Though the last paragraph of the review did have one little bit that I did enjoy. Most free of all is perhaps Sliding, a muscular blues rock dirge that serves a reminder of McCartney's masterful heaviosity. For The Telegraph, Neil McCormick gave the album four out of five stars, though annoyingly this particular review is kept behind a subscription paywall, so we're just going to have to go off the title alone for this one, and one quote that was available on the... and he called it a whimsical, poppy antidote to a miserable year. The third album in the ex-Beatles solo series is a fantastical, if occasionally cheesy, set of light-hearted pop ideas. For the Daily Mail, Tim Tim DeLisle DeLisle gave the album four out of five stars, and he said, The irony is that McCartney makes braver choices than Dylan, whose artistry goes into the lyrics. There is a reason why we're all talking about playing a song. This is the sound of a great songwriter being playful, using funny voices, making funny noises, showing us the child inside the 78-year-old man. The results are patchy, but fully alive. For The Times, Will Hodgkinson gave the album 4 out of 5, and this was another review that was behind a paywall. But again, there was enough of a quote for me to get enough out of it. And just even from this little bit, I can tell that he's a fan of the Paul McCartney, the avant-garde book, because he writes, It is Paul McCartney's destiny, and after 57 years in the game, there doesn't appear to be much he can do about it, to be the cheery, sentimental, uncool Beatle. 
It doesn't matter that he was exploring 60s London countercultural world of magazines and pop art happenings whilst John was still playing married life in suburban Weybridge. It makes not a difference that he made an ambient techno album in the early 90s under the guise of the fireman. He's the jumper-wearing, fab macker of Wonderful Christmas Time and Ebony and Ivory, and no amount of pioneering experimentation can ever change that. For the magazine publication Enemy, Mark Beaumont also gave the album 4 out of 5, and he wrote, As you'd expect from a legend who's been pushing his electronic boundaries on recent albums, such as 2018's Egypt Station, Sir Paul approaches the record with the same adventuring spirit as he did on McCartney 2, even as his solitary situation demands he revive his game in terms of classic Macca melodies. In fact, where McCartney 3 really breaks from the lineage of its eponymous forebearers is in its sheer unpredictability. A White Album sort of eclecticism was the key to the greatness of 2018's Egypt Station, and McCartney 3 is even more chameleonic. For The New Yorker, the album was re reviewed by Hao Su, and they actually gave the album no score, almost as if you actually have to read the review and interpret what the author is saying, rather than just having a quick number at the end. They write, But it may be impossible for a septuagenarian ex-Beatle to grasp the anxiety-filled world that his musical descendants have inherited. The pandemic has provided an occasion for younger artists, including Taylor Swift, Charlie XCX and BTS, to release work that touches on the isolation and loneliness of contemporary life. By contrast, there's something incredibly poor about McCartney's approach to the pandemic album. Cheery, resilient, forever looking forward. It's a reminder of one of the Beatles' most powerful messages to baby boomers. Life gets better. It's getting better all the time. They also write, McCartney's optimism feels vintage. For Ultimate Classic Rock Review, Michael Gallucci also gave the album no score and wrote, and just like those earlier albums, this third solo record won't be as fondly remembered as Ram or Band on the Run or even 2005's Chaos and Creation in the Backyard, but it's no give my regard to Broad Street either. And in the end, it's both a substantial and tossed off work, begging not to be taken seriously whilst also categorising itself as a personal statement, just like McCartney and McCartney 2 by an artist in transition. But the challenges in this work are less complicated and abrasive, Getting reflective on the farm during one of the most tumultuous years of any of us will ever live through will do that. In typical McCartney fashion, he handles it all with ease. For the Financial Times, Ladovic Hunty Tilney gave the album 3 out of 5 stars. He also does one of the uh, classic things in this review is he calls McCartney 1 a proto-indie album. He also writes, Energetic musicianship holds the years at bay. Although McCartney's vocals betray their advance, his high tone has a fraying quality in The Kiss of Venus, a sweet rock number about the most harmonic sound of two lovers in a summer's clinch. Like a warm breeze, an electric harpsichord materialises to bolster the song's acoustic harmony with a rich, irrepressible tone. It is a very McCartney-ish touch, typical of the passing moments of inspiration that blow through McCartney 3, a sequel that lives up to and often surpasses its inconsistent predecessors. For The Independent, Helen Brown gave the album four out of five, and the only bit that was really worth taking any uh, quote from was just this small bit when she writes, Weird, wonderful and whimsical. McCartney 3 finds the walrus on inspirational form. It gets a thumbs up from me. And finally, 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 for Pitchfork, Stuart Berman gave the album 7.2 out of 10, a nice specific rating there, 72%. He writes... 
So the appearance of the Roman numeral in the title of McCartney 3 is loaded with significance. A promising indication of what we're getting from here is the man, not the myth. This is especially exciting news for the generation of fans who hold temporary secretary in greater esteem than Sergeant Peppers. <coughs> I don't know what he's talking about. With no desire to engage with a contemporary musical landscape or absorb new influences, McCartney 3 is less adventurous and revelatory than its eponymous predecessors. Mostly, it reiterates his well-established fondness for acoustic ditties, rheumative piano ballads and hot rod rockers. And yet, it still offers intriguing evidence that, even when sticking to his usual lane, a septuagenarian multimillionaire pop star, comfortably enclosed in his rural estate, can still get up to some pretty weird shit when no one's looking. And we're done, folks. I promise you we're done. That's the last of McCartney 3 that you're ever going to get on this podcast until I do a Listen With Sam episode and until the archive comes out, whenever that comes out. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I really do. It's been a lot of homework for me. It's taken me far longer than I ever thought it would have. Most of it came down to the fact that the sliding music video had never come out. I had to keep pushing it back and back. But hey, hopefully this episode has been at least a bit educational for you, if not the most entertaining on the surface. I really hope you enjoyed my chats with Dylan Seavey and my man Matt Phillips. And I will just say this on the show right now. I've got no intentions of doing any long, large or lengthy projects until I get off the ground done. You know, I might do a listen with Sam just to fill a week's gap or something like that. But yeah, folks, do not worry. I'm not going to bog you down with any more unnecessary content till I get that album review and discussion out. So yeah. Thank you all for listening to another episode of Poor or Nothing, everyone. This has been my summary review of McCartney 3. Once again, thanks to Dylan Seavey and Matt Phillips. Check out all of their details down below. Go check out other episodes I've done with those two amazing lads. And go and check out the other McCartney 3 episodes we've done on the show as well. Thank you, everyone. Keep listening to Paul. Peace and love, peace and love. Play us out, then.